Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Last week, as you recall, the men of our small space colony left the Jupiter II in search of vitally needed water, unaware that their course was leading them directly into a terrifying, uncharted valley of volcanoes. Danger! Danger! What is it? I don't know. What danger? Volcano about to erupt. Welcome back, folks, to Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 27th broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Lost Civilization. Now, Kurt, we're getting near the end of season one. We've only got three episodes to go. I can't wait for the summer reruns. How about you? I think I missed the summer reruns when they were the first time through because the only black and white Lost in Space episodes as a five-year-old that I remember were, you know, the really famous ones. And this was not one of the ones I have any recollection of whatsoever. So, Mm, Interesting. Okay. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. 43-year-old William Welch returns for his third of four Lost in Space teleplays. He'd previously written The Hungry Sea, which I thought was a good episode, and One of Our Dogs is Missing, which I enjoyed. His treatment for this episode, though, falls short of his previous scripts, in my view, but it's possible Welch was overloaded because he was fast becoming a workhorse for Irwin Allen. He would eventually pen 34 scripts of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, 8 for Time Tunnel, and 10 for Land of the Giants. The same might be said for script editor Tony Wilson, who was clearly getting burned out, as evidenced by the fact that he was starting to ignore many of the constructive script changes that were being sent down from Alan himself. He was still paying attention to the network script notes, however, no matter how minor or even silly they were. I'll mention some of those as we get to them. 
I kind of surprised Irwin tolerated being ignored by an employee. He's actually paying money to do as he's told. But, you know, Irwin is probably being overloaded, too. I mean, he's just got too much going on on too many networks. I bet you're right. Yeah. We noted before that 42-year-old Don Richardson would become the most prolific series director. The Lost Civilization was his third of 26 episodes. We mentioned last time that after series DP Gene Polito was let go, he was replaced by Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea cinematographer Wenton Hawk. But since Hawk was being used for this two-for-one shooting schedule on All That Glitters, an outside DP, Charles G. Clark, was brought in to film The Lost Civilization. Clark had previously been hired to shoot The Magic Mirror a couple of months previously during that two-for-one shoot. The rest of the crew and stages used for this episode were borrowed from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, who'd already wrapped their production schedule for this season. This episode was designed to be a budget and time saver because it utilized significant amounts of stock footage from other movies, more chariot location shots from the unaired pilot, and the volcano bombardment scenes from One of Our Dogs is Missing. But despite all that, Richardson still went over his allotted schedule, filming from the 11th through the 21st of March, 1966, with two additional partial days for pickup shots taken on the 22nd and the 23rd of March. That's seven days plus two partial days. Budget-wise, this episode was supposed to cost $130,980, but came in at $133,851. Not nearly as big a bust as some episodes, but still in the red. Remember, CBS was only paying $100,000 for each new episode of Lost in Space, and half that for the 19 episodes that got a summer repeat. All that deficit would have to be made up down the road in syndication. Okay, so let's do some quick Hollywood math here. I mean, real math. <laughs> There's no such thing as real Hollywood <laughs> math, right? It's always, you know, oh, we're always losing money here, you know. We don't know any taxes. Yeah. But uh, if Irwin's getting paid $100,000 for the first run episodes, that's $2,900,000 for all 29 episodes. But if he's budgeting one hundred and thirty k per episode, his cost would be $870,000 more than he's being paid, except... For those repeats, because he's getting paid $50,000 for the 19 repeats, that equals another $950,000, which is $80,000 more than the total loss at the end of the season if he were to stay in budget, which he's not. Uh, but probably sometimes he's actually under budget, you know, so it works out both ways. But unfortunately, in Hollywood, it more often goes over than under. So this is beginning to sound a little bit like my Kickstarters. They look like they're making profit. But once you subtract out all the little things that you're not planning on, like postage, commissions, royalties, everything else, you start looking at some serious overruns. So I I can feel his pain. Initially, you think, hey, I'm going to make $80,000 when this whole thing's said and done. But then you start going over a budget and it starts happening more often than not. So yeah, maybe his uh, screaming and jumping up and down about time and money starts to make sense after a while. Oh, it surely does. And I don't even think your uh, fuzzy Hollywood math took into account all that he spent on the unaired pilot. I think that was like five or $600,000 that's unaccounted for. Oh, okay. So they, they don't even pay for the pilot. That's right. Yeah. It's all done on spec. Exactly. Well, in any event, this episode aired on the 13th of April, 1966, and it was one of those 19 episodes that got repeated in the summer on the 3rd of August, 1966. The episode features all the male stars, minus Harris, and guest starred seven-year-old Kim Carrath, who was cast to play the Sleeping Beauty Princess. She'd been acting on screen from the age of three, starring in three feature films before being cast in 1964 
as Angela Cartwright's younger sister Gretel von Trapp in The Sound of Music. She would go on to have a productive feature film and TV career through the early 1980s. Okay, so Penny had another reunion with a sister cast member, because last time it was Sherry Jackson who played her older sister in Make Room for Daddy, and now it's someone who played her younger sister in Sound of Music, so the Hollywood Hills are alive with the sound of nepotism. (laughs) Good point, yeah. Well, the appropriately named Royal Dano was 43 when he played the princess's major domo. I'm going to have a hard time with saying that. Yeah, it's a bit of tongue twister. Uh, and actually watching the episode, I kept just wanting to call his character Ming for some reason. <laughs> Ming the Merciless. Yeah. Well, Dano was a veteran character actor who went on to appear in approximately 200 movies and TV shows between 1949 and 1993. He was most often seen in westerns and worked several times with Jimmy Stewart. But my favorite nugget from his IMBD bio was that he provided the voice for the audio-animatronic Abraham Lincoln figure in Disneyland and Disney World's Hall of Presidents that is still performing today. But growing up in Dixie, I have to admit that Old Honest Abe is not one of my favorite presidents, but those Disney replicas are amazing, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Those those robots were great. (laughs) In fact, I hear that back in the 1990s, Bill Clinton tried to commission one, you know, in a futile effort to try to make Al Gore sound more lifelike. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Sorry I missed that one. Well, although uncredited, we do also get to see Dawson Palmer's unmasked face again as one of the alien soldiers. Oh, so Keel from Space Croppers works double duty as a soldier. I like it. Uh, A werewolf that moonlights. (laughs) (laughs) That was low-hanging fruit. I had to. Yeah, it was good. That was good. Well, with that, let's get on with the story. The Act One teaser starts out with the narrator catching us up from last episode's cliffhanger, and we get some nice stock shots from the unaired pilot of the chariot traversing the dusky desert terrain. Dick Tufeld reminds us that the male members of our space colony, along with Trusty B9, are on a mission in search of vitally needed water. But, unfortunately, they're unaware that their course is leading them directly into a valley of uncharted, deadly volcanoes. But don't worry, folks. Those volcanoes have been dormant for years. What are the odds they'll pick this particular moment to come to life? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they weren't expecting those volcanoes. Because if you look hard, you can see everyone in the chariot was actually wearing their parkas. Yeah! Or did you notice that, yes. Mr. Blu-ray, as the miniature drove around the corner of the boulder? <laughs> the dolls were all wearing the parkas from the Hungry Sea episode. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, sure enough, inside the chariot, just at that very moment, the robot announces from the back row, Danger! Danger! Will asks, what danger? Volcano about to erupt! Son of a... Yeah, you know, this is one of the few times when you're reminded that the narrator is also the voice of the robot, because Dick Tufeld is narrating, and then he goes straight into the robot shtick. It is. When he does it back-to-back like that, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, that's right, this is the same guy. Yes. Well, the boys look up ahead, and we get an impressive, quick stock shot of a huge volcano erupting. Don screams for John to 
pull over quick. And I was thinking, where? Oh well, John must think it's a good idea because he's shown struggling to steer the vehicle out of the path of danger. Then the camera cuts to an impressive miniature shot of the chariot pulling into a smoky, rocky area next to a cliffside as showers of sparking ash and fireballs rain down, just missing our castaways by inches. Now, of course, we saw that footage a few months ago in the teaser for One of Our Dogs is Missing, where this was supposed to be a meteor shower in that case. But I think it works here as flying volcano debris just as well. It is a nice special effects shot, and it's always worth another look. Oh yeah, I can hear Irwin now. I bet if the audience liked it the first time, they'll like it twice as much this time. (laughs) Well, the camera cuts back to a live-action shot of the chariot with the boys inside, snaking around several boulders surrounded by more smoke and sparks. Pay attention closely. You might notice that Guy Williams is so distracted by the chaos that he manages to strike a glancing blow with the chariot on one of those large rocks inside the cave. But he avoids a fender bender because it's one of those special low mass boulders that you find on pre-planets. In fact, the vehicle just seems to push that giant boulder along a couple of feet and out of the way. Almost as if it was made of paper mache. Touche to the paper mache. At least that way Don can repair any damage with some whiteout. <laughs> Well, coming to a stop for some reason, we're then shown a series of quick cuts with more stock footage of erupting and flowing hot molten magma, which elicits another danger, danger. Will shouts, Dad, it's getting closer. Backseat driver Major West yells, Let's get out of here. Sounds like good advice, and John agrees, but unfortunately, the Robinsons are having one of those Murphy's Law on steroids days because now the chariot decides it's not going to start. <laughs> why, why did he turn it off? Did he turn it off? I mean, let's take a nice look here. No, he did. He turned it off, and I was scratching my head going, what are you trying to do, John? Save gas? <laughs> uh, well, you know, John, he is the consummate scientist. I mean, he always wants to get a good close look at the super hot comets, the hungry derelict ships, and exploding volcanoes. It's just his way. <laughs> uh... Well, there's no time for anyone to ask the professor why he turned the ignition off because the robot urgently warns our trio of endangered castaways. Lava approaching! Lava approaching! Lava approaching! Just then, we see that great shot from last week's cliffhanger from inside the chariot of a molten fireball heading straight for the front windshield. It looks like they've had it, but at the last second, it misses them by inches. Yeah, that was close, but they're not out of danger. Will shouts, the lava's getting closer, hurry. But Dad says, it's no use. The ignition system's dead. The music is reaching a crescendo as the impending doom nears, and we're shown more quick cutaways of stock footage with flowing lava to drive home the point. As this heart-throbbing teaser comes to a climax, in desperation, John suggests they abandon the chariot and make a run for it. But Major West counters, they'll never make it. The lava's too close now. Well, the grown-ups seem out of ideas, but thankfully they've brought along our boy genius, Will, who climbs up front and suggests they try bypassing the ignition. John shouts back, it's worth a try. As the robot continues to issue dire warnings of danger, and Will screams, hurry, Don, hurry. Somehow, Major West manages to hotwire the chariot, allowing the professor to finally get it cranked. 
and shouting, Okay, hang on, we're getting out of here. John shifts the vehicle into gear and gets them moving out of the lava's path, literally in the nick of time. Well, we're all breathing a sigh of relief, but don't relax yet, kids, because in a flash... The music goes from triumph to ominous as we cut to an image of the chariot pulling away from the menacing magma flow displayed now on a large, high-tech view screen. Before we can get our bearings, the camera does a quick pull-out to reveal the back of a seated figure in robes watching that screen as the Robinsons make their last-minute escape from death. Oh boy. In the last few seconds of this roller coaster teaser, we jump to a front view of the seated being, and the camera tracks in on the sinister alien's face as he raises a black gloved hand sporting several ornate rings to his cheek and stares back with a brooding look of cold calculation. I love that shot. It's a reminder that every time Lost in Space is broadcast, we're not the only ones watching it. You know, you've got a whole galaxy of people out there. And they're always looking, they're always viewing it. They're like 1950s and 60s TV sets. You know? <laughs> no flat screens, no color. It's great. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. Yeah, but you know that this guy is super evil because who else is going to wear big ornate rings on the outside of their gloves? I mean, that's scary, you know. <laughs> oh, and he's got a nice twitching eyelid, too. I don't know yes, if you saw that. I love that. <laughs> Seething with hatred. Exactly, exactly. Well, the sight of that bizarre but somehow familiar-looking alien has alarm bells going off in my head, but I guess we'll have to wait until after the opening titles to find out where the chariot and this story is headed next. Turn for the break. It's the next morning as the episode credits roll by, just like the chariot does over the dusty desert terrain. Looking out over the parched surroundings, Don's skeptical about finding a fresh water source in this area. John agrees, but abruptly, the robot gives a welcome warning. Attention! Attention! We are now approaching water. Seeing nothing but rocks and sand leaves the men scratching their heads. But Will says there has to be water. The robot never makes mistakes. Not wanting to be upstaged by B9 in the know-it-all department, the professor suggests that B9 might have a loose connection. But the robot counters, Negative. All circuits functioning. We are passing over a large body of water. Will gets it. B9 means underground, right? Affirmative. John says that right now they're in no position to pass up any possibility. With that, the boys roll on a little farther in search of a suitable spot to set up the drilling rig. Chariot comes to a stop in a sandy clearing. As the men jump out with their gear in hand, Don complains about the heat and the professor agrees, adding that the eruption heated up the entire area. Funny thing is, there's no visible signs of the eruption. No scorched bushes, smoking lava rocks, or piles of ash. Just another typical pre-planus garden spot of boulders and sand. Still, there's no sign of water, and Don's not so sure the robot hasn't really blown a circuit. Will pipes in to ask, where are they going to dig? 
With a note of skepticism, Dan answers that, oh, the robot's going to tell us that. B-9 hears and obeys, declaring, At once! Extending his clawed arms out like electronic divining rods, the robot rolls out of the clearing, followed by the rest of the party. It isn't long before he stops by another rocky spot, vibrates his claws in excitement, and declares, Dig here! Don seems dubious, but John's in for a penny, in for a pound. So the boys set up the rig and start drilling. After a suitable period of work, the electronic drill seems to have struck pay dirt, or in this case, pay water. Because bubbling up from the bore shaft is a fountain of what appears to be cool, clear drinking water. Will beams, but Dad's more circumspect, cautioning that it's not exactly a gusher. Maybe not. But as hot as it is, Don will settle for anything and runs back to the chariot for the water tester. Turning away for a second to grab some more gear, John looks back to see Will leaning down, about to take a big swig from that bubbling wellspring and nearly bites the boy's head off, harshly shouting, Son, what are you doing? (sighs) Dad's tone and volume gave me PTSD flashbacks from my own childhood, but... Yeah, maybe that's why Smith isn't along for the ride. He got better results using reverse psychology and telling Will where he should drink water. Remember that? Go on. You shouldn't be afraid to put your hand in what appears to be clear, harmless drinking water. (laughs) Oh, yeah, from Invaders from the Fifth Dimension. That was funny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, poor Will explains, he just wanted a drink. The heat's made him thirsty. Kneeling down next to the boy, Dad lectures, Have you forgotten about testing? No, but he just wanted one little drink. John sensibly answers, Not until they've made sure it's safe. And so far, I'm on Dad's side, even if he did rattle me a little with that shout. But then he does something that had me going, what? (laughs) The next second, after preaching safety first to Will, the professor leans down, scoops up some water with his bare hand, and smells it, which elicits a sour expression. Will asks if it's all right. Dad replies that he doesn't know. So then, without further ado, he takes another handful and gives it the taste test. (laughs) Wow. As soon as that water touches his lips, John spits the liquid out in disgust. Yuck. Don returns with the tester, but the professor tells him, Stow it. The water's no good. Somehow Will resisted, saying, Dad, have you forgot about testing? Yeah, well, he he resists saying that because he doesn't want a mouthful of bloody chiclets. (laughs) The professor doesn't need any lip. (laughs) Oh, boy. Well, everyone's frustrated and getting hotter under the collar, especially Don, who glances at the silent B-9 and mocks. He's never wrong, huh? Will doesn't understand it and chides the mechanical servant for saying there was drinking water there. The robot defends himself, answering, The adjective drinking was not included in my programming. Exasperated, Will says, Well, it is now. (laughs) And once more, B-9 hears and obeys. Revision of original programming duly noted. We will now search for drinking water. All right, let's break this rig down. And I did find that little exchange chuckle-worthy, Kurt, but it also seemed to me like the robots regressed back to his old literal lawyerly ways for some reason. What did you think? Well, I mean, you know, he can only, like they say, trash in, trash out. So uh, there are examples of where you might need water that are, is not drinking water, maybe water for the radiator or the chariot. So, yeah, I, I thought it was accurate enough. Okay. All right. In any event, with that, the boys break down the drilling equipment to resume their search for drinking water. 
Next, we see the chariots back on the move by way of more Red Rock Canyon location B-roll footage filmed for the pilot. Inside the chariot, Will complains, Dad, it's awful hot back here. Can't you turn up the air conditioning? It's hot up here too. Of course, no one seems to be thinking of taking off their thick velour sweaters they're all wearing, but... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. You think? That's funny. I've got the unit up full. Give me a reading on the inside temperature. Temperature outside, 125 degrees Fahrenheit. Temperature inside, 104 degrees and rising. Wow, you'd think they would have noticed that a little sooner. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think so, yeah. He's right, it's 104. Correction, 105 and rising. Okay, that chariot is a cool-looking vehicle, but it's basically a big greenhouse on tracks. Maybe they should use some of those handy sunshade curtains that are all over the giant windows and give the air conditioning a fighting chance here just saying (laughs) yeah really i mean i'm from florida so you know i know intense heat but when they say 104 degrees is super hot believe me it is super hot they would be drenched if they were in a closed vehicle in that temperature i mean 94 degrees maybe but 104 no way no how yeah well professor robinson barks at don what's the matter with the air conditioner i don't know i've got it set for 72 just not pulling Maybe it's Dr. Smith. No, no, this is one thing we can't blame on Smith. He's hundreds of miles away, thank goodness. If they're hundreds of miles away, how do they plan on getting whatever water they find back to the Jupiter 2? That's going to be a long pipeline, Kurt. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't see any jugs or anything like that, but who knows? Maybe they've got a uh, water bin in the back that they're going to fill up. (laughs) Well, Will explains what he means is... I mean what he did last night before we left. Will? Just what did Dr. Smith do last night? He was complaining about not sleeping well lately. He's always complaining. He sleeps like a log. Go on, Will. What happened? He kept saying the nights were getting warmer. I knew it. And he wanted to do something about the air conditioner in his cabin. So he came out to the chariot and... Oh, no. You don't have to go any further, Will. I can guess the rest. He took some parts from our chariot unit for his own air conditioner, right? Yeah, I guess that's just about what happened. I guess that would have been a nice detail to mention, Will, before you left for a drive across the desert, don't you think? Yeah, but, you know, we should go easy on Will. You can bet that Smith made him promise to keep it our little secret. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. Well, getting everyone refocused on the problem at hand, the robot alerts. Inside temperature, 110 and rising. Who asked you? Dad, can't we open the windows? No, son, it's hotter outside than it is in here. Listen, if we can't get this chariot out of that sun, we're gonna fry. What are we gonna do? Obvious solution, seek shade. There's a bright remark for you. He's right, it's our only hope. We can't fix that unit in the sun. Where are we gonna find shade out here in the desert? There are caves up ahead. Give me a bearing. Bearing 045. You're not gonna listen to him, are you, after that fiasco with the water? Well, right now, we have no choice. Next, we're shown yet more cross-country footage of the chariot relentlessly lumbering across the rock-strewn wastelands of Preplanus. Inside the vehicle, the robot now reports that the internal temperature has reached an unbearable 131 degrees. Sheesh. Our castaways' sweat-covered faces show they're on the verge of heat exhaustion, if not heat stroke. The professor states the obvious. They can't take much more of this. 
Suddenly, Don spots something up ahead. It's what they've been desperately seeking. A cave! That does look like a cave entrance. Affirmative. Large cave. Dead ahead. I knew you'd find one. And we're shown a nice composite shot of the distant chariot driving into a matte painting cave entrance that was earlier used near the end of There Were Giants in the Earth. It's a nice shot. Yeah, they really need to start making maps of this planet. I mean, they always seem to be retracing earlier steps without knowing it. (laughs) Boy, that looks familiar. (laughs) Inside the cave, the chariot comes to a stop surrounded by rock walls and stalagmites or stalactites. I can never remember which one is which, but... Anyway, the boys climb out, relieved, and as John says, they should be able to repair the chariot inside their rocky refuge. Don breaks out the tools and takes a look to see what parts Smith swiped from their air conditioning. Will asked Dad if he could stretch his legs, but I was thinking, after all they went through, shouldn't they at least drink a tiny thimble of water before they start working or exercising? Yeah, not too much, son. Yeah. Not too much. Just, just one gulp. Take it easy. Yeah. <laughs> Dad says, sure, son, go ahead. Will tells the robot to come along, adding that B-9 can use the exercise. Come to think of it, he does look a little (laughs) roly-poly. Stepping down from the vehicle, but of course not showing us Bob May's sock feet, the robot counters, That does not compute. My legs do not stretch. Which is really funny, because his legs are basically (laughs) like accordions, you know? (laughs) Yeah, uh uh-huh. Uh, and you can see when he's walking along that he's bobbing up and down, you know, Yeah. yeah. even if you don't see his feet. Uh-huh. Well, you might have noticed during that line that B-9's chest didn't flash as it normally does when he speaks. And that made me wonder if that snarky little joke was perhaps added after the scene was filmed, because thus far there hasn't really been too much humor in this episode, at least intentional humor. That was a good catch. It was either that or Bob May forgot to toggle his light switch. Although they may have noticed that the scene seemed a little dead when they were watching the rushes, and they needed to add something just to fill in the dead air, you know. After all, audiences are far less likely to notice that the robot blinks while talking compared to if a human's lips don't move when they talk, you know. So really, the robot's the only person that they can go and add that dialogue to without making it obvious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's a good point. It could be either one, but it just, I've rarely noticed that before. It was kind of interesting that it didn't flash, but... Uh... Hmm. Yeah, but when you're writing the script on the page, you may say, well, then he leaves the scene. But you don't know how long that's going to take. If the actors saunter off, that could be three long seconds. So, yeah, I could see them wanting to add a little something there to keep the dialogue going. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a cute little line, too. So, fair point. Well, it only takes the Major a second to discover that the doctor swiped the chariot's main thermostat control. Oh, he would take that part, says the professor. If only Don had Smith's scrawny neck there, why he'd... But John cuts him off, refocusing on how they can replace that missing part. Cooling down a bit, Don says he should be able to jerry-rig something. It'll just take some time. So with that, they get on with their work. You know, it's funny how Smith can't even clean a laser pistol without completely confusing all the parts. And yet at other times, he can successfully conduct delicate surgeries on the robot or know what and how to remove vital components to the (laughs) air conditioning of the chariot. I think this is one of those uh, force field factor continuity errors that is selectively inserted depending on when the writers need a useful plot device. But maybe that's just me. No, I think you're right about that. He does seem to... (laughs) 
<laughs> he seems to be an expert at times, and then other times he's all thumbs. So good catch on that one. Yeah. As the first act nears a climax, we catch up with Will some distance away, stepping along what appears to be a ledge-like path through the dimly lit cave. He pauses looking back, calling for the dawdling robot to catch up. Apparently B9's distracted by what his sensors are picking up, reporting, Supply of water nearby. You mean right here in this cave? Nearby. Drinking water? Affirmative. Are you sure? You made us both look pretty silly with that salt water. This water is fit for human consumption. It is an enormous supply. It wouldn't it be something if we could find the water while Dad and Don were working on the chariot? Affirmative. Well, come on. Stop fooling around and point. Which is exactly what the robot does, and in the direction they're already headed. That way. The camera tracks along several feet with the boys as the robot encourages... The water is that way. Taking a few more steps, Will looks down at the opening to a crevasse and doubtfully asks, Down there? Are you sure? Affirmative. Large body of water fit for human consumption. I'll take a look. But when the camera cuts away, instead of water, we're shown what looks like the bone-dry bottom of a deep well. The robot assures the boy that the water is deeper down. Okay, if you say so. But before Will can investigate further, we hear deep rumbling, and then the ground starts to sway. The robot warns, Danger! 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 Planet quake! Well, at least the robot didn't call it an earthquake. They probably got too many letters from English teachers complaining about that from earlier episodes. Hmm, good point. Well, both boys struggle to maintain their footing as their surroundings are being buffeted by the seismic shocks. But I have to say, a cave is the last place I'd want to be in the middle of a quake on any planet. Oh, amen. I mean, the whole ground's ready to just fall on you. Mm-hmm. You know, get out of there. Come on. Exactly. And hopefully that whole cavern doesn't come crashing down in their heads, but we'll have to wait until we return from station identification to find out how our space pioneers survived this latest brush with danger, danger. Lost in Space will continue after station identification. TV2 Chicago. When we return from the break to start Act 2, we're still inside the cavern. That planet quake has only intensified and the robot is still warning. It's danger, danger, planet quake, danger, danger. But that's when things take a turn for the worst because the seismic shocks cause Will to stumble off the ledge, falling head first down into that treacherous crevasse. And the bad luck continues as the shaking unsettles two huge rock formations which block the opening to the pit behind the boy. Oh dear. Thankfully, we don't have to wait long to see that somehow, Will managed to survive the drop down that shaft, landing in some soft sand, apparently shaken up, but not badly injured. He stands up to get his bearings, dusts himself off, then climbing on top of a nearby boulder, he shouts back up to the robot for help. Help! Help! I'm down here! I can't 
but getting no response and unable to climb up the well's sheer walls, he steps back down to take a look around for another way out. Interestingly, we see that the bottom of the shaft connects to a passageway that opens up wider. Hmm. Curious, the boy steps cautiously out of frame to explore further. You know, I thought this scene was well executed, all things considered, but one glaring issue was the glaring sunlight that is throwing distinct shadows on the ground below. Where's it coming from? We never see the sky to see the source, but there's some sort of strong light down there in the sub-cave basement, even enough to grow lush plants, as we'll see soon enough. Still, it's not obvious enough to ruin an otherwise eerie atmosphere. No, it is. It's very eerie down there, and all kinds of questions are starting to pop into our heads, I think. Back up on the ledge, the planet quake has subsided, but Robot is still on red alert, waving his arms as he rushes over to the blocked entrance of the hole and quickly positions himself between the pair of toppled over giant rocks. Mustering all his mechanical strength, B9 uses his arms and a few cybernetic groans to push the boulders out of the way. Back below, our junior genius is continuing to survey the area when suddenly he discovers a sign of life in the form of a very cool-looking ancient hieroglyphic relief carved into a large stone. Before he can make sense of it, the planet quake starts acting up again, knocking Will completely off his feet. All this Shaking and baking they've suffered today must have finally caught up with B9 circuits, or maybe he's just worn out from his little Samson act a minute ago. In any event, still standing by the pit as more powerful tremors kick off, the robot groans that he's losing balance, then drops like a clay pigeon, bubble first, down the rat hole, just like Will did. As the shocks subside, Will picks himself up again and races back to the sandy floor of the pit to find his crumpled comrade lying lifeless against a boulder. As the last of the dust and debris dribbles down on the pair of fallen friends, Will's worried for his would-be rescuer and tries to get him functioning again. Then we cut back quickly to the professor and Don. They're making progress on the repair job, but curiously don't seem to have been affected or even aware of that magnitude 10 quake that just happened even though presumably they're not all that far away from the boys. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was great. But, you know, you've obviously never worked on the chariot before. It requires your full focus and attention. And you can't get distracted <laughs> by little things like planet quakes. I mean, besides, which is more important, the cave falling in on everyone and perhaps burying your child or getting the AC working so you can drive in cool comfort? You know, priorities, eh? Priorities. <laughs> uh, well, that's... <laughs> Okay. All right. I'm going with the flow on this one, Kurt. I'm going with the flow. So We don't linger with the men long. Instead, we jump back to Will, who's hoping out loud that the banged-up B9's condensers weren't damaged in the fall. Flipping on the robot's energizer switches brings him back to life, and Will's delighted that his friend's okay. The robot jokes, Beware the first step. I found that out already. So did you. But why did you try to follow me? I have been programmed to look after you. I was only doing my job. 
Sure, I know. But you nearly wrecked yourself doing it. Now what? Now, something about all these interactions with the robots so far in the story seemed a little off to me, Kurt. Maybe I'm wrong, but it's almost like no one had briefed William Welch on how far the robots' personality and relationships with the castaways, especially Will, had developed since he'd written One of Our Dogs is Missing. I'm probably off base here, Kurt, but what's your take? Well, honestly, I was too immersed in the cave to care much about the dialogue. I I love spelunking, and I'm hoping some giant bats make an appearance or, you know, maybe a giant centipede or huge spider. I mean, this is, I'm I'm really enjoying this part. It is atmospheric. I mean, yeah, I'm probably being a little bit too uh, nitpicky here with that, but it just seemed like it was kind of a difference in the way that they related to each other. So, all right. Well, what I like is the difference that the whole story is taking. We're now in a completely different setting that we haven't seen in these other 20-something-odd episodes. You know, we've been stuck on the surface of this planet all this time, and now we're getting to basically explore a whole nother planet, even though it's technically the same one. It feels like a whole different planet. That's very true. We're out of the sand and the brush and the and the dead trees and everything, and we're in a different world. So I agree. It does seem to be reaching for a much more serious tone overall. Even though I enjoy the comedy, there's a lot less of that. Yep. No Smith, no slapstick. Exactly. Well, in response to Will's question, now what? The robot replies that... Impossible to retrace original steps. Must seek another way. I found that out already, too. There's a passageway along here. Will that get us out? Insufficient data. Suggest trial and error. Okay. We sure have been giving those errors a workout. With that, the pair ramble out of the frame, and we segue to a series of short scenes that cut back and forth from Will and the Robot to John and Don. A while later, we're back up with the grown-ups, who are ready to test out the repaired AC unit on the chariot. After a little hiccup with the cold airline, Don manages to switch it on, and it seems that all systems are go. Having already used up a good portion of the day, John's ready to pack up and get moving, but I couldn't help thinking, even with the AC patched up, wouldn't it make more sense to avoid the burning sun altogether and shift the search back to the night shift? Yeah, I know. For some reason, whenever they're out of water and things are really, really hot, they always want to do their searching in the scorching sun, you know? They did the same thing back when Smith turned into a giant. Remember that one? Exactly. You're right. It's weird. It is weird. But at least they stripped down to their T-shirts in that situation. <laughs> All except Smith. You know, he kept on his, well, he yes. kept his, his thick velour. Yes. Didn't want to expose that girdle, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, no. Oh, well, at least the men remember not to leave the cave without Will and the robot. But the boys are nowhere in sight. Where could they be? Will, let's go. Where'd he go? I don't know. I don't even see the robot. Last time I saw them, they were together. You don't think they went outside, do you? Oh, not in that blazing sun. They must have wandered off back there. Will! 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 Shouting for the boy only returns an eerie echo of the professor's voice. Uh, I wonder how far back that cave goes. Well, let's find out. Bring the rope. Yeah, don't forget the rope. We'll need to hang that disobedient brat when we finally find him. <laughs> Stay close, my ass. He said he wanted to stretch his legs. We'll use it to stretch his neck. Well, I'm starting to wonder about that the way... Uh... <laughs> John shouted at him earlier. He might be, he might be ready to do something like that. But yeah, it was interesting and thoughtful that they brought a rope because they're going to need it further. But it just occurred to me while you were talking there. One thing no one seems to have brought along with them, not Will, the robot, these guys, 
is a flashlight. I mean, they're in a cave. <laughs> it's dark, right? Yeah, they they have that in their in their chariot. I'm pretty sure they keep it there. Yeah, and your eyes acclimate to the dark after a while. But you say you like spelunking. I mean, caves are dark, right? <laughs> I mean, really dark. Yeah, but of course, maybe they know this is going to be a sunlit cave. <laughs> well, like you say, maybe they read ahead in the script, and the lighting in this cave is only going to get weirder, like you were intimating before. So we'll have to wait for that, kids. Well, with a sense of urgency, the men retrace the missing castaway's steps along the rocky ledge as John stops to call out for Will. Will! 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 But still hearing no reply, the men continue on for some time, deeper into that dim cave, as evidenced by a quick dissolve to another shot of more fruitless searching. Don happens to glance down and draws John's attention to the robot's tread marks. At least they're heading in the right direction. The men continue to follow the spore for a little longer until it grows cold, right at the edge of the pit. Don worriedly remarks, It's quite a drop. She fell down there. But he doesn't finish the unthinkable thought. John shouts down the shaft wheel, asking, Will! 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 Are you all right? Are you all right? But again, there's no answer, just more echoes. Dad's starting to get stressed now and snatches the rope from Don, letting it unravel to the bottom of the shaft. By the way, I... Hate to pile on here. I'm being Debbie Downer today, but I think Guy Williams is a very good actor. But there were several lines he delivered in this scene that just they just didn't seem quite right to me. The the intonation and the emotion was a little more extreme than seemed right for the situation. And sometimes it was a little out of sync with his other lines and Mark Goddard's reaction. I mean, I know he's excited and everything, but that was just kind of how I read it. I'm no expert on this, but if I'm right about this, I have to partially blame Don Richardson for this because... It's my understanding that it's part of the director's job to elicit the correct performance from the actors for a given scene. And that means more than just getting a recitation of the words on the page. But set me straight here, Kurt. What's going on? Well, well, in a normal production, you're right. But this isn't a normal production. This is a Irwin Allen production. <laughs> <laughs> and that means no rehearsals and everything shot in one take yeah. unless there's a glaring error. And by glaring, I don't mean minor stuff like whether Guy Williams is overreacting or not, or even teeny-weeny stuff like a dog trader popping his head up from behind a rock during the entrance of the space trader. <laughs> Nobody will notice that stuff. Print it. Move on. That's a take. <laughs> Cut, take, print it. Well, okay, that's good. That's funny, too. I, I know. But but there's another element that may be going on here, too, is that all this time, Guy Williams was told that he was going to be the star of this show. Right. And then Smith takes it over. So suddenly, now after, like, what is this, 27 episodes, he gets in a shot where Smith is going to be out of the picture, and Guy Williams is going to, again, have a chance to shine, and the lines aren't there. Basically, it's going to be Will and the robot again. So it must be so frustrating. He's trying to make a big scene out of what's basically a minor scene. Can you blame him? No, I can't blame him. That's probably really what's going on here. But again, the director probably should have reined him in a little bit on a couple of those takes. And again, I think Guy Williams is a good actor. He obviously is. And this was his big chance. And like you said, the lines just weren't there for him, were they? Mm. Well, we're back with our two young castaways, and the robot gives Will a hand climbing down from a large rock formation. Thanks! You're welcome. Abruptly, B-9 starts waving his arms in excitement. Now what's the matter? Large body of water ahead. Suitable for human consumption. Golly, you sure have a one-track mind. 
water anymore. We're just trying to find a way out of here. There is an open area beyond the bend. There is? And a large body of water, fit for human consumption. Okay, now this was a revealing scene, wasn't it? Because up until now, I thought when the robot flailed his arms around, he was just getting excited. But apparently, that's how he scans. This was the first time that was ever made obvious to me. So all those danger, danger scenes where the arms actions are going up and down is not hysteria, it's electronic detection. Did you notice that? Well, it makes sense because, as we mentioned before, when they were back on the surface looking for water, he had his claws extended out like divining rods. So that would kind of fit in as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that it becomes very obvious in this scene because he, he literally this is which way and he, he does his arms up and down. He's scanning that way. Oh, those claws are multifunctional. They can shoot out beams and they can pick up <laughs> they're like radar dishes too. That's cool. Now, I bet Bob May knew this all along, but you know, we just didn't this is the first time it was that obvious. Mm, interesting, interesting. Well, some distance away, John and the Major managed to shimmy down the rope safely to the bottom of that crevasse. Pausing to reflect on the depth of the shaft, but without saying directly, Don's convinced that Will couldn't have survived the fall, and so must not be down there. But eagle-eyed John spots a mark in the ground that could have only been made by the robot. A fall like that would have broken his circuits. Since he's not there, someone must have fixed him, and the professor is counting on that someone being Will, so the search goes on. You know, as a parent, I always appreciate it when bachelors like Don tell me not to worry because if my child did come this way, they would be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Don. That's a big relief. That's a big load off my mind. (laughs) Making their way around several oversized boulders, the two men come across that same Byzantine-like hieroglyphic rock carving that Will discovered earlier. Don wonders aloud, Civilized people down here? Perhaps there was a civilization there once, answers John, but there's no evidence that it still survives. At least not yet, Professor. Because the creepy music is telegraphing a very different story. Before they walk out of frame, Don guardedly hopes aloud that John's right, especially since Will's down there somewhere. You know, let me just say at this point, things are getting really interesting. The search for water, that was kind of ho-hum. But once they enter the cave and we get the pre-planus quakes and discover the lower level, I'm really paying attention. Now this Babylonian rock relief uh, and the two-headed gargoyle or whatever it is, this is getting very atmospheric and mysterious. Where is all this heading? And are we going to see molten lava men or mole people monsters? I'm not touching that dial. Oh, mole people, man. Oh, that would be great. (laughs) Yeah. Wouldn't it, though? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, don't touch that dial. Meanwhile, walking along a jungle shoreline bathed in bright sunshine, Will and the robot appear to have found that large body of water fit for human consumption that B9 was fixated on earlier. Well, at least I thought it was sunshine because this reminded me of the lagoon from Gilligan's Island. In reality, though, it's the standing voyage to the bottom of the sea exterior beach set on Fox's Stage B. And we soon learn that while it seems that the boys have somehow made it back up to the surface of the planet, they are, in fact, despite all that apparent daylight, still farther underground. Hmm. 
I'm looking forward to hearing how they explain the underground lighting, but suddenly this story is giving me a strong journey to the center of the earth vibe, Kurt. Oh yeah, you, you ripped the words right out of my mouth. The next shot has a cove with waves crashing against the shore, which is very akin to the underground sea in the Jules Verne underground story. So now you can add dinosaurs to my want list of possible <laughs> guest stars. You know, even if there's cutaway shots of dinosaurs from previous Irwin Allen movies, bring them on, baby. This is great. They would fit in perfectly, wouldn't they? Yeah, but I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for an explanation because I don't think you're going to get one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I kind of already knew that, but... (laughs) The boys pause for a moment to take in the unexpected setting. The robot silently points a claw triumphantly towards the water. Then retreated to that stock shot of ocean-like waves crashing against the rocks inside the cavern that you just mentioned. Will asks in astonishment, and it's all fit for human consumption? Naturally, answers B9. They'll have plenty of water now, muses the boy. Even so, Will tells the robot he preferred being short of water and not lost. But the mechanical mate assures his buddy they won't stay lost long, vowing to take Will back where they left the others. You will, asks the boy. The robot does a neat 360-degree torso spin then raises his bubble in an expression of surprise, announcing, It does not compute. That means you don't know how. Reacting like a scolded puppy, B9 drops his bubble in shame. Sensing his digital dude's discomfort, Will tries to buck up his friend. Well, I know you'd help me if you could. Don't worry, we'll find a way out of here. Anyway, at least I won't be thirsty. Soothed, the robot's bubble snaps back to attention. So Will suggests they get moving, and they do, striding away from the shore, heading deeper into that mysterious jungle. Yes, the very mysterious jungle which grows from artificial cave light. You know, Journey to the Center of the Earth, they had giant mushrooms, and gas reactions in the air created the light. But, you know, Journey to the Center of Prepranus just avoids looking up in hopes that we never notice. Now, I'm not complaining, mind you, I'm just noticing that's all, but... I'm so glad of the change of scenery, I'd accept any new setting and and love it. Yeah, so far it's pretty fun. Next, we're back with a search party as the men negotiate a narrow climb down through a rocky chute to the sandy bottom below. Unfortunately, there aren't any more signs in the sand that Will and the robot came that way. Don suggests they split up to cover more ground, but the professor insists that they stick together, adding there's no telling how many more times those passages divide. Major West bows to John's logic, and so do I. (laughs) There's enough lost castaways for one day. You know, that detail threw me for a loop. How could there not be any more signs in the sand? You know, Will's just a kid. I can imagine his footprints getting faint, but that big heavy robot and his tractor treads? How could you not see that in the sand? I mean, I'm not complaining. I'm just noticing again, but hey. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Help us out, folks, for once we can't bail the writer out. Well, anyway, a little later, the men have emerged from the dark shadows and cramped quarters of the caverns, arriving at an open, well-illuminated clearing. Before they can adjust to the brightness and orient themselves, the ground begins to tremble with more seismic vibrations. In a not-so-subtle bit of foreshadowing, the camera cuts to a huge, ball-shaped boulder. And I mean, it really looks like a ball. (laughs) Precariously perched, 
on top of a sloping stone ridge right next to the pair. Aren't those rocks always on top of something else where they can fall? Wherever the giant set them is little booby traps, the cyclops. Exactly. We all sense what's coming next, and so must Professor Robinson, because without a word, he spots the danger, then quickly and forcefully shoves Don back away, just as the boulders jostled loose and begins rolling down the ramp-like ridge. Diving under the rocky lip of the ledge for cover, the professor turns back in time to shout in horror, Don! But unlike Indiana Jones, Major West loses the foot race with this rolling stone, and we hear an anguished cry of pain coming from the other side of the clearing. With the ground still quaking, the professor rushes over to find Don thankfully alive, but pinned down by that jumbo boulder which rolled right on his foot. Not sure if he imbibes, but if he does... Something tells me Major West isn't a fan of Rolling Rock beer because he has the worst luck with boulders falling on his tootsies. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you say John pushed Don out of the way of the boulder, but from my perspective, he shoved him right in the way of it, you know? Maybe it's a it's payback type for all those, don't worry, you'll see his corpse if Will came this way remarks. <laughs> Uh, or maybe uh, Bollocks let him see some of that drone footage of Judy oh, yeah. and West together. <laughs> you never even asked for my blessing, did you? Wow. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That is funny. Yeah, he pushes him right into the way of the, <laughs> of the boulder. That's great. Oh, I didn't think of that at all. Well, the quake ends as quickly as it began, but both men are still being pelted with small stones and dust from above as John tries desperately to free Don's foot. Writhing in pain, the Major tells the professor to go on without him before he loses the trail. But John's having none of it. When he goes, Don's coming with him. Unable to free Major West's flattened foot with brute force alone, John frantically scans the area, telling his fading friend that he's got to find something for leverage, and then races out of the frame to find it. I don't know, how did he think he was going to push that boulder away? But then again, (laughs) there was a paper mache boulder. (laughs) Exactly, I was going to say. That's one heavy piece of mache. Okay, that's funny. Cutting back to our wondering pair of junior space spelunkers, they're still trekking through the thick, tropical undergrowth of this strange subterranean world. Will's leading the way, closely followed by the robot, who, arms extended, appears ready for trouble. The boy halts long enough to ask his computerized companion a question we're all thinking. What kind of place is this? First a whole ocean, and now a jungle, and all underground. I don't see how we're ever going to get out of here, do you? B9 puts on a brave face, insisting that he'll get them out of there, then he takes over the lead. Well, the robot only takes a few steps before announcing, Warning! Sensors indicate presence of human life. Dad, I bet he's trying to find us. Negative. Human presence is alien. Alien? Will's confused, and so am I, because he repeats, Alien? Which is it, robot? Human or alien? Yeah, that was a little confusing. We assume all humans are from Earth because genetically, how could they not be? Star Trek sidestepped this detail by calling aliens that looked human, humanoid. But here, Lost in Space suggests that even aliens can be true space brothers and sisters, assuming that they don't have hair growing out of the wrong places in their face like that alien did in His Majesty Smith. (laughs) Yeah, the Andronican. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, Will's doubtful, insisting that... Oh, come on, there couldn't be any people down here. Sensors indicate the contrary. Well, then your sensors are wrong. They must have been damaged in that fall back there. Damage to sensors in fall is not unlikely. Well, don't worry about it. When we get back, I'll give you a complete overhaul. You'll be as good as new. Now, we might as well keep moving in the same direction. I'm afraid I'm turning into a grumpy old film critic here, Kurt, but to me this was another weird interchange. Humans or aliens, which one is it? Then there's Will absolute certainty that there's no way people could be down here. Why is that so unbelievable? But you aren't the least bit surprised that there's all that sunshine underground? And then there's the robot! He's now lost the ability to run a self-test or check out his own sensors. I'm sorry, but this is really just kind of coming across as low-effort logic writing here to me. Maybe if those lines were delivered with, you know, a little humor, I'd be more likely to let it slip. But in this case, this is clearly supposed to be taken as serious, and I couldn't stop rolling my eyes for some reason. Talk me down, Kurt. Talk me down off the ledge. No, no, I think you're right. Why couldn't it be a serious science fiction show like Star Trek, where... Everyone in the universe speaks English, and they teleport with their molecules from planet to planet every week, and it somehow also teleports their soul and their intellect. I mean, come on. Or occasionally they time travel into Earth's past or future, even when they're on a different planet. It's not science, Lane. It's science fiction. Have fun with the lapse of logic. You know, like little Easter eggs. Don't get anal about it, because if you stick to strict science... You spend the first 100 million episodes traveling through empty space, and when you finally reach the planet, you die from disease after eating or breathing anything native, okay? Besides, Will's just a kid. What kind of logic do you expect from an 8- or 10-year-old? Like the robot says, that does not compute. (laughs) Okay, touche. Fair points, all that. But let me just say, I do not have to have perfectly plausible science in my science fiction in order to enjoy it. I I also enjoy fantasy where there's no science involved at all. I just like to know what I'm watching so I don't get confused or disappointed. And this was the first episode in a while where I thought we were getting a more serious sci-fi type episode. That's kind of where I'm coming from. I guess, like you say, I should have said, that does not compute. (laughs) Or just go with the flow. (laughs) Oh, well. Well, that promise for an overhaul seems to work on the robot, and the boys keep trudging on in the same direction. But as they exit the frame, the camera lingers on some lush undergrowth, when ominously, a hand emerges, peeling back the foliage to reveal a humanoid's (laughs) leering face, wearing a Buck Rogers-style military helmet, silently observing our two disoriented friends depart the area. Uh Uh-oh. Well, now at least we know that the robot sensors are just fine, but I've got a bad feeling about this, Obi-Wan. Oh, yeah, I always get a big kick out of those rabbit-ear antennas sticking out of their helmet. (laughs) That's how we know they're futuristic, you know, just like Officer Bullocks from The Last of Us. (laughs) They love their space FM. Yes. Next, we're back again with the grown-ups, just as John, using a log, manages to free Don's foot from under that huge rock. He asks the Major, How bad is it? Still panting and wincing in pain, Don's not sure. Although he's able to wiggle his toes, he's in no shape to walk on it. Lamenting all the time that's been taken to free him from the boulder, Don repeats his earlier plea for John to keep searching without him. But no matter how gimpy the Major is, the Professor's having none of it. 
He helps Don up and cautions him to keep pressure off his foot. With the injured pilot leaning on the professor's shoulder for support, the two men shuffle out of the frame as John confidently vows, no matter where Will is, they'll find him. You know, for some reason, Guy reminds me of Bruce Willis in that scene. You know, I can't leave without the gimp. <laughs> but you know, just being able to move your toes doesn't mean everything's okay. I mean, your bones could be completely pulverized. And you can still have nerve endings to move your toes, I would think, if the muscles are still there. So that whole yeah. bit was... And that's a giant boulder. I mean, come on. That was huge. It really was huge. I wonder where he stuck that limb, too. Did he stick the limb between the foot and the boulder? And he's like, twisting. did that help? Let me, let me try a little hard. Now, here I thought the acting was good, though. Don was acting suitably in pain, and John uh, was acting like he was just exerting so much force to get that boulder to move. So that part I thought was really well acted. So, yeah, good job, boys. Well, switching back to the real boys, the robot's still on point. When suddenly he halts, Will asks what's wrong and gets another urgent warning of danger. Scanning the area for trouble, Will says it looks safe enough to him, but B9 repeats emphatically that there's danger ahead. Proceed with caution. Will's not buying it. Boy, do you need an overhaul. As he starts to press on, the robot commands the boy to Stop! Do not proceed! Danger! Exasperated, Will exhales and asks the computerized klaxon what he suggests. Snapping off a long, leafy branch from a nearby tree, the robot tells Will to use it to Try the ground ahead before he proceeds. Reluctantly humoring B9, Will grabs the limb and begins sweeping it along the sandy path in front of him as he marches a few steps further. But he doesn't get far. In a heart-stopping flash, that branch trips a devilish booby trap formed from two giant serrated mechanical jaws that spring up from the brush and would have snapped little Will in half had that limb been his foot. Startled and humbled, the wide-eyed boy admits to his friend, that could have been me, then apologizes for doubting the robot, adding that he saved the boy's life. B9 refrains from saying, I told you so. Instead, responding to Will's mea culpa with a couple of knowing affirmatives. Will vows from now on he'll believe what his buddy tells him, then asks, is it safe to go on? But when the robot answers with a third short and sweet affirmative, the boy seems to forget his promise, asking, Are you sure your tapes aren't stuck? The robot reports that he's functioning properly and assures his unsure traveling companion that there are no more traps ahead. Will smiles in relief and urges the robot to come on as they venture deeper into the jungle. As the two boys walked ahead, I kept thinking, you know... Will might have taken the robot's warning seriously from the beginning if he'd just explained there was a booby trap ahead instead of some unspecified danger. What's your take on this frustrating little episode? Yeah, well, it was a bit strange. He actually said, proceed with caution. You know, if it's a giant bear trap or lethal landmine of some sort, you would think he would say, do not proceed under any circumstances. But the point is, he did stop him. Did you hear that loud roar that happened when the trap sprang? Yes. What created that? It was cool. You know, even though you could kind of tell that the jaws kind of vibrated like they were like plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it, it was it was a good fact. 
I yeah, it, the the sound really added to the shock of it too. It was almost like mm-hmm. a shrill screaming of an animal. <laughs> so I kind of thought at first it might be an animal, but anyway. <laughs> well, next we cut back to John, who's struggling to help a limping Major West negotiate the Sandy's trail despite his banged up foot. The men pause for a moment by a rocky outcropping, so Don, still gasping from pain, can catch his breath. The professor asks the major, "How does it feel?" I'd have had a hard time not giving a smart-ass answer, but yeah, Don, me too. <laughs> how do you think it feels? But Don's classier than I am. He reports that he doesn't think it's broken. That's good news to the professor, who says he's probably right. Probably just a bad sprain and a lot of bruises. <laughs> <laughs> After that short break, John tells Don they'll have to find something he can use as a crutch. Then the search continues as the two men hobble out of the scene. You know, this cutting back and forth between the two groups, it allows the editor to compress the time that both groups are taking to get to their goal, wherever it is. This scene with John and Don, for example, it only lasts 30 or so seconds. But when next we see Will and the robot, they're somewhere else completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is true. Yeah, that's a good point. With the act drawing to a close, we're back in the jungle again as the boys reach the edge of a clearing. But what's more... The robot stops dead in his treads and issues a warning to his puzzled partner that there's a human being nearby. Again, he states human being, not alien. I'd been confused by that before, but after seeing the head of that soldier in the bushes a few minutes ago, I guess I'm ready to cut B9 some slack on the terminology because that guy did look very much like a human being. But while I'm on it, why didn't the robot sensors pick up that helmeted stranger they'd walked by earlier? What did you think about all that? Ah, well, it's another one of those force field factors again, you know? Mm-hmm. B9 can detect androids 100 feet away when he needs to, through the hole of the ship, no less. But then he barely detects an alien humanoid right next to him when it's convenient to the plot. On the other hand, he did fall and get knocked around a lot, so maybe you could blame it on that. Mm. Yeah, you're probably right. The force field factor sounds like the best possible reason. <laughs> Will doesn't see anyone and asks, Where? Arms extended in a defensive posture, the robot cryptically answers in a lowered tone that someone is there. Will tells his electronic escort to keep him covered, then slowly moves forward into the clearing. The tension builds along with the music until the boy finally breaks out of the vegetation into the open. Astounded by the sight ahead, now he freezes in place and blurts out a whispery, Look! Then we're shown what has Will bewildered. It's a large, circular, cushioned sofa bed, illuminated by several groovy-looking Jetson-style light fixtures, along with some gauzy curtains suspended from a familiar piece of recycled set decoration. The flashing fusion core! That reappearing prop isn't what's most surprising to Will. As he slowly approaches the unexpected sight, we see that fast asleep on that bed is the human being that the robot had earlier detected. And it's not the spying soldier we saw earlier. Because before we go to break, the camera gives us a nice close-up of a peacefully dreaming, innocent-looking young girl wearing a white gown and a jeweled tiara on her head, and lying next to her is a diamond-studded scepter. Hmm, what do you think all this means, Kurt? Well, it means that there's no mosquitoes in this underworld because there's no mosquito nets amongst all those curtains. That poor girl would be eaten alive without some sort of protection in that tropical jungle. I mean, come on. 
But, you know, maybe our old friend, the scene-crashing fusion core, emits a special bug force field or insect zapper net. Anything is possible in the future, especially the distant future of 1997. <laughs> mm, so true. Well, it's a fantastic vision that has me asking lots of questions. But we'll have to wait until after the break to discover the answers. Lost in Space, brought to you by... I'm June Lockhart, and I've served a lot of fried chicken to my family. But fried chicken can be a little greasy. That's why I'm so happy with shake and bake. You shake and bake. No frying. So your chicken comes out crispy, but not greasy like fried chicken. Mmm, you can really taste the difference. Crispy, but not greasy like fried chicken. Shake and bake. It's better than frying. When we return from the commercial to begin Act 3, we pick up where we left off, with Will cautiously stepping up next to the regal sofa bed and the dozing damsel. Turning back to the robot, Will says, It's just a girl. Should I wake her up? The robot steps closer and answers, Affirmative. Hey, hey, wake up. She must be deaf or something. Come on, wake up, will ya? But when Will tries to rouse the child from her slumber, even a gentle shake on the arm has no effect on her state of rest. The boy turns back to B9 with an empty-handed gesture asking, What do I do now? And gets a matter-of-fact answer that he never expected. But I'm guessing most folks at home did. Kiss the girl. Kiss her? It is the only way to wake her up. And let her sleep. Stop. It is necessary to kiss the girl. All right, then you do it. It is necessary that you do it. How do you know what's necessary for me to do? Dr. Smith has programmed into my memory banks the plots of every story in literature. This is one of them. And if Erwin has his way, we'll be seeing most of those plots shamelessly borrowed in upcoming episodes of Lost in Space. Only if they're public domain. (laughs) (laughs) Curious, Will asks, which story is this plot borrowed from? B9 answers, wait for it. Sleeping Beauty. She doesn't look like any beauty to me. She sure is sleeping. That is why you must kiss her to wake her up. Do I have to? Affirmative. Now I know why Don gets so mad at Dr. Smith. Kiss the girl. All right, all right. Give me a chance, will you? Still in the girls are yucky phase of boyhood, Will's not eager to play along further. But the robot insists repeating emphatically several times that our hesitant hero must kiss the girl. With some more firm cajoling, Will finally gives in and does the dirty deed, leaning over to give the drowsy dame a quick peck on the cheek. You know, you were critical of Will's dialogue earlier, but you got to admit, he played this girls are icky boy phase perfectly here. I I thought the dialogue and performance was dead on, and it was very, very amusing. And not only did it bring back memories of our own innocence at that age, it seemed especially nostalgic because of all the Me Too movement going on these days, some of which is, you know, long overdue, but other times it seems reactionary and outright angry that boys and girls are attracted to each other and kind of promotes this idea that any advances towards the opposite sex are either sexual harassment or assault. You know, I doubt they would even film this scene today, but I thought it was charming, didn't you? 
Oh, it was charming, but you make a good point. She certainly didn't give consent, did she? No, she did not. (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. Yeah. Well, within seconds of delivering that uninvited kiss, the lights overhead begin to pulsate, and slowly the girl opens her eyes. She rolls over and greets her prince with a sweet, Hello. Will answers back, Hi. She asks who he is, and he introduces himself to her. But when he asks for her name, she's surprised that he doesn't know who she is and declares that she's a princess. Hey, this really is Sleeping Beauty, but uh, where is that wicked queen, I'm wondering? Oh, he's in the other episode, uh, All That Glitters. (laughs) No, you didn't hear that here, folks. It was just a bad joke. Well... Will's dubious about her claims, which causes the princess to ask, if he didn't know who she was, then why did he wake her? Shooting the mute B9 an irritated smirk, he tells her that he made me do it, adding sarcastically that even though he's only a robot, he's awfully smart, maybe a little too smart for his own good. Changing the subject, the robot says that the princess can tell him how to get out of there. That gets Will's attention. But the princess is confused. Why would he want to leave such a beautiful country? Explaining that his dad's looking for him, and probably worried, prompts her to ask where he comes from. When Will tells her that he's originally from a planet called Earth, a sad expression crosses the little girl's face. Sighing, she says, Earth? Oh, that's too bad. You mean you know about Earth? I've been taught about it. Then why do you say it's too bad? Well, I suppose it's all right, as long as you come from there and you aren't going back. Now, what do you mean by that? Nothing. Where is your father? Up there, somewhere on the surface. I see. Now, will you take me back to him? That depends. On what? Lots of things. Do you believe yet? That I'm a princess? No, I don't know. You must believe it. Okay, okay, I believe it. Now, how do I get back to my father? First, you must come with me. Will's not sure, but after the robot announces that they will both go with the princess... I don't know. We will both go with the princess. Okay, I'll come with you. Good, come along then. He relents, and the boys follow the grinning, sweet little girl out of the clearing to parts unknown. You know, I like that moment of foretelling when the princess is saddened that he comes from Earth. When I first saw it, I thought it was because she hoped he was a native and wanted him to stay. But later, we'll discover that it's not the issue. His fate is sealed, and so is the fate of the planet that he comes from. And she has very good reason to be saddened about it, as do we. So this is one of those clever double-meaning scenes you'll appreciate more the second time viewing. You're right. That is good. And I thought seven-year-old Kim Carath is very cute, and her voice is sweet. She's doing a really fine job of acting, but I think she looks just a little young to be matched up with Bill Mooney, who was, I think, about 12 at the time. But does she work okay as little Sleeping Beauty in this part? 
Well, I, I wouldn't be one to talk since I was a teenager before my wife was even born. <laughs> but, but, as, but even as my wife points out, she's the one who's more mature on an intellectual level. And likewise, Kim is surprisingly mature acting. Plus, she's so adorable, you can't help but be charmed by her. Oh, she is a cutie pie. But I couldn't help but notice also that uh, there's a couple of shots where you can see she's got a couple of teeth, <laughs> teeth yeah. missing, you uh-huh. know. I'm surprised she didn't mess up the way she was doing the lines. <laughs> well, next we catch up with John and Don, who appears to be in less pain and a little more mobile because they found him a makeshift crutch made from a stick. The men are definitely on Will's trail because they've reached the jungle shoreline that the missing boys had passed earlier. Cutting back to the same stock shot of waves crashing inside a rocky cave we saw before, John comments, This is incredible. A whole underground world. Don asks guardedly, Complete with a population? John's not letting himself think about that yet. Instead, he notes, There's no problem seeing footprints on the beach, at least. So checking to make sure the Major's good to go, the search presses on. Next, the princess is leading Will by the hand along the path through the dense jungle to an unknown destination. With the robot following close behind, Will stops, which causes the girl to ask him if something's wrong. Yeah, he says, where's she taking him? To show him her army, she answers. It sounds far-fetched to Will. You've got an army? She told him she was a princess, so naturally she has an army. Does he want to see it? Sure, okay. Then come on. But as soon as they walk out of frame, the robot lingers for a moment. Then his bubble pops up, and arms start waving as he sounds the alarm. Danger! 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 But strangely, no one responds to his warning. Instead, B-9 starts rolling along the path in pursuit of the kids, as he continues to warn of another unspecified danger. And I thought that was a little weird, especially since Will had vowed not to doubt the robot again just a short while ago, but... Well, well, let's be fair, Lane. I mean, when you were young and being led by the hand by a girl you just kissed, didn't you ignore all the alarms warning you, danger, danger? (laughs) That's a fair point, yes. Back with the Robinson search party, the two men are deep in the jungle. Don takes a little stumble with his crutch, causing John to suggest he sit and rest for a while. You better sit and rest a minute, Don. All right. We're on that trail. Let's keep going. All right, if you think you can. I can't believe what I'm seeing. A jungle down here. That's all we see before we find Will. So do I. I couldn't help but hear the robot's voice in my head warning, Danger! Danger! Especially since it just occurred to me that they forgot their weapons back in the chariot. Well... They probably figure once they reach the robot, they can use his weaponry. Ah, yes. Because he does come armed at all times. That's a good point. Yes. Even though mysteriously he doesn't use it at all. You know, not in this episode. That's true. It is weird. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Good point. Saving power. Yes. Well, that oversight is about to come back to haunt the men because they only get a few yards further when without warning... Their path is blocked by a threatening figure who emerges from the bushes, pointing a long, silver, lance-like weapon in their faces. 
The aggressor appears to be that helmeted alien soldier we saw spying on Will and the robot before. Even though the soldier is armed, it's still two against one. So John reacts instinctively by knocking the soldier's staff aside, and both men turn around to make a hasty retreat. But before they can take a step, another silent warrior emerges from the brush, blocking their escape route. Uh Uh-oh. The balance of power has changed, which the second soldier makes clear by aiming his weapon over the castaway's heads, firing a kinetic charge, which pulverizes the top of a nearby palm tree. Having made the point without uttering a word, the attacker motions aggressively with his staff for the men to get moving along down the trail. The two prisoners raise their hands in surrender and begrudgingly comply, shuffling out of the frame with their uniformed captors close on their heels. You know, those lances look pretty cool, but the bottle rocket energy charge, it kind of looked like you could dodge it pretty easily, you know? But Yeah. Then again, yeah. Don is hobbled, so running away isn't exactly an option. No, that's a good point. Well, I did like the uniforms of those aliens. You know how I always have to give you a fashion report on what the aliens are wearing. But in this case, I was really getting a Flash Gordon serial vibe from those outfits, especially their silver headgear, which looked a lot like close-fitting motorcycle helmets. But they had these cool fin-like extensions above the ears trailing backwards. Well, those fins, they reminded me of Cadillac fins. Yeah. You know, but I overall, I liked it. I, the thing that was strange about them was that they didn't go up where you could see them. You kind of had a hard time seeing that the fins, they were actually parallel to the ground. Yeah. So uh, it was different from the, the flash type wings that you're talking about where you can clearly see them from the side. Yeah. They kind of look like little horns sticking out. The, but then I realized, no, those are fins and they go back behind the guy's head. Yeah, but I've never seen them before or since. I don't think they get used again in Lost in Space. They were pretty cool. The rest of their outfits are pretty retro 1930s serial get-ups. They've just got long black-sleeved Roman tunics on with a silver belt and some gladiator sandals with calf straps. And that lance weapon was cool looking, but like you say, the bottle rocket charge, probably not as threatening as uh, some of the other weapons we've seen on the show. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes simple is better. Do you remember that Star Trek episode, The Return of the Archons? The Mm -hmm. lawgivers absorbed deviants with a staff, very similar to these lances. They shot out sparks instead of bottle rockets, but the same basic concept. Now, later in the episode, Kirk and Spock capture one of those weapons, and they discover it's nothing but an empty tube. There's nothing inside. Now, that impressed me a lot as a kid. You know, no explanation, just more mystery that's never answered. And then later on, they uncover a pane of glass that works like a light. Mm. And again, there's no wires or batteries or anything mechanical. It's just an 8 by 10 sheet of glass that you pull out of a cover and it lights up the entire room. So, you know, no tech can actually be the ultimate high tech. Mm. Good point. I'd forgotten all about that episode of Star Trek. That's great. Yeah, Yeah, that that one had the heavy Landru. You know, it was a holograph. At noon, at high noon, it was like festival time. They'd all go oh, crazy. Oh, yeah, it was like Mardi Gras. Yeah, I do remember that episode now. Though. Well, heck, I don't think I want to go to Mardi Gras anymore. That's <laughs> what it's like. Do people try to kill each other there? <laughs> <laughs> the word of Landrew be with you. <laughs> what was so scary about that guy was that he was so calm when he would describe things. You know, it was always like, you've come to a planet that has no disease, no strife, no violence. It's mm-hmm. a perfect planet. You know, it's almost like you being a pilot, you could relate to that. Whatever the pilot tells you, 
uh, we're going to be experiencing a little bit of turbulence. You may want to keep your seatbelt on. You know, that usually means get ready to crash. You know? <laughs> always underplayed everything. That's uh, the most important part of pilot training. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, later we're inside the royal, high-tech, and familiar-looking command center that, even as a kid, I did recognize as a hastily redressed section of the submarine Seaview's control room, but it looked pretty cool here. Will's regal host leads him down a tight set of spiral stairs into a chamber filled with banks of flashing computer controls and flanked by two more of her royal guards. They salute Her Majesty as she passes by lowering their staffs. The camera tracks along with the princess as she silently leads her guests down a corridor lined with more electronic gear and many more of her ceremonial warriors standing at attention. Well, now I criticized Director Richardson before, so I'll give him some praise for that shot because as we're following them down the hall, the camera was at Will's height, so we're only seeing the guards from their chest down. And shooting it that way did two things for me, Kurt. It made me feel almost like I was another kid following behind Will, which I liked, and also by not showing the faces of those soldiers lined up along the wall, it gave the impression that these really were expendable cannon fodder for whatever purpose they might be needed for. There's no exposition here, there's no dialogue, it's a case of showing is better than telling, Mm -hmm. and it's one of the few shots in this episode that really stood out to me from a cinematic standpoint. Well, that's a great innovation of the the director. I mean, I wouldn't have thought of that. But it was, like you said, it's a child's perspective. And it Mm -hmm. it gives the the idea that these guys are basically towering over him, you know? Right, right. So, great, great touch. It was. I liked it. Plus, it has one other advantage from the Irwin Allen standpoint. It allows you to use the same guards over and over again without it being as obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, there's always that angle, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably the main motivation after all. You know, we were giving it all this other credit. But. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, the girl leads Will into the throne room which is basically a blacked-out limbo set that's decorated with a pair of black Egyptian dog god statues, probably swiped from the movie Cleopatra like so many props Mm -hmm. and lost in space. And there's more of those sheer fabric columns of flashing Christmas tree lights. And flanked by two flaming royal urns is the platinum throne itself, which is suitably elevated above the common subjects on a pedestal. What surprised me, though, was that sitting in the throne, eyes closed in contemplation, is that bizarre-looking robed character we saw briefly way back in the teaser. I say surprised because I didn't think anyone but the Sovereign was allowed to use the throne. Then I thought, well, maybe he's her father, the king. But noticing the arrival of the princess, the alien springs out of the royal chair, bows and greets the girl as your highness so he's not royalty but apparently the princess doesn't mind him squatting in her chair Hmm. yeah well you know she's been asleep for a long time and i you know he was put in charge to run things until she was revived so it made perfect sense to me that he was in the captain's chair and she acted like she expected him to be there and also He didn't really seem that surprised to see her awake, so either he guessed that she might have been revived by the invaders that he saw earlier on TV, or he watched it happen in real time, you know, from that same TV screen. 
the mm-hmm. 1950s cathode ray TV screen. <laughs> yeah. All right. No, that's a good point. Yes, that's a good point. So they're going to call this guy by another title later on, but actually he's probably more like a regent. Mm-hmm. And as the uh, Andronican said to Dr. Smith, when you're the regent, that does place a great deal of power in his hands. Mm. Oh, yes. <laughs> really? <laughs> I had no idea. Well, that strange-looking alien glances menacingly at Will, who's taken back by his appearance. And now that we get a longer look at him, Kurt, was I right? Was there something familiar about him? <laughs> yeah, it did kind of give off that Flash Gordon vibe, didn't it? You know, the Emperor mm-hmm. Emperor Ming. But yes. Royal Dano, I love that name. He did such a great job as Major Damo. They could have used the same name, really. I mean, it sounds... Both sound imperial and menacing, but Royal gave off this simmering, brooding hate. You know, like you said, his his eye would twitch, you know, just to give it added emphasis. So he'd been waiting a long time to take over the galaxy, and finally the wait was over. So, you know, you could you could tell it, he was having a good time at that point. Mm. He was looking forward to the, the next act. Yes. Well, Her Highness explains that Will is the young man who woke her. Then, noticing Will's apprehension, she tells the boy not to be frightened. The alien is only her major domo. Hearing that causes Will to blurt out, Then you really are a princess. Of course, she giggles. The major domo asks the boy his name, which he gives. Then, pointing back down towards the control room, asks, And his name? Then the camera jumps to a shot of B9, shuffling away from that spiral staircase in their direction. Oh, yeah. All this time, we forgot about the robot. But conveniently, we're not shown B9 trying to negotiate that narrow set of corkscrew steps. That would have been tough. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he made his way down the staircase the same way he did down that hole in the cave, you know, bubblehead first. Yeah, it could have been. <laughs> Will tells Major Domo that he hasn't got a name. He's a robot. Ming responds only with a raised eyebrow. The princess tells her aide that she'd like him to show Will their warriors. With a deep bow, he answers, Yes, your highness, and instructs Will to follow him. As the alien walks out of the royal audience chamber, Will hesitates. So the princess repeats for him not to be frightened by her assistant. Will looks concerned, but firmly states, He's not afraid. Good, says the girl, adding before she leaves that, Later, they will talk again. Now go. Our Junior Robinson wavers for another second, but summons his courage, then follows after the Major Domo. You know, I was a little worried that Major Domo might try a coup against such a young princess, especially after he felt how nice and comfy his ass conformed (laughs) to her throne. But I have to say, he always does follow orders and seems pretty loyal, even when she tells him to do things he, he might not otherwise want to do. Yeah, he does. He does follow orders. That's true. But I was kind of suspicious of him. That's a good point. I was wondering, what's his real game? Because he's he's kind of quiet and brooding, as you say. Well, that Major Domo is waiting on Will in another part of the headquarters, and we get to see another redressed Seaview set, complete with more computer panels, that large monitor screen some ship's bulkhead supports, and a small, circular, watertight hatch on the floor, which is opened by one of the royal guards. When the boy catches up with the alien, he points to the opening in the floor and commands, Descend! Will looks back over his shoulder at B9, 
and calls for him to come along too. But as the robot rolls up next to the boy, he makes a quick survey, then popping up his bubble head announces that it's impossible for him to comply. The passageway and his circumference do not compute. I guess he's gotten a little too roly-poly to fit through that manhole, but at least they didn't repeat the trick they did with the spiral staircase and cut to the bottom of the ladder because that really would have stretched all credibility. I like that whole bit. It also kind of made it a little more scary that he was going down there by himself, you know. That's right. You know, I should point out, even though you recognize it being Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, I hadn't seen Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea for years and years after 1966 or whatever, so... I had the trading cards, but I wouldn't have recognized any of the sets. And I doubt any of the average viewers did either. This was all very impressive stuff. We're actually seeing walls for once. They're not all limbo sets. And the way that this civilization is multi-layered on different levels, that's cool too. Kind of like the underground beehive layers in the Resident Evil series, if you remember that. Leaving the robot behind just adds to that tension, you know, because you don't know what he's going to see down there. Are we going to get those monsters? Are we going to get the centipedes, the killer robots, the armored soldiers? What are they going to be? You know, no commercials, please. I want to see what's going on here. You didn't recognize those as the Seaview sets at all, huh? That's interesting. Well, let me just point out, I hadn't seen this episode until, you know, last week. This is the first time I saw this episode. Okay. But even back then, Voice of the Bottom Seas played on a different network, and that network wasn't in our town. And a lot of people, you know, let's be honest, even if all three networks were in that town, the average viewer would only have a 33% chance of having seen Voice of the Bottom of Sea because there were other programs that were playing at that time that may have captured their attention. So a lot of people, the majority of people, would not have seen Voice of the Bottom of the Sea. That's a good point. And yeah, I want to be clear, this is something I'm not criticizing them for. I do like the setting as well and everything. It's just, I guess I'm being a bit of a, you know, know-it-all by pointing out that I recognized it. It's fun to do. And I wanted to know that because, you know, honestly, if you hadn't pointed that out, I wouldn't have even known that this was from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. So I'm glad you pointed it out. Well, thank you, but I'm not done yet. Okay. Because there's more, <laughs> there's more to come. You know, let me just interrupt, because all this about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, clearly this whole episode was shot at a time when Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea was taking a hiatus. And you have to give them credit. Not only did they figure out how to catch up on their production schedule by doing these two episodes simultaneously, but they also managed to do it in a hole in the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea schedule. So, I mean, they were just like double dipping in so many ways. And like, oh, these guys have never seen that set before. We can use that. And we already have the set built. So, I mean, they were saving so much money and they were saving so much time in this production. You really got to tip your toupee to Irwin Allen at this point. Oh, no. That was very clever. Mm hmm. Will yields to the situation and reluctantly tells B9 to wait for him there. The boy slithers into the open hatch, disappearing down a chute. And as we dissolve to the next location on Will's guided tour, that turns out to be yet another repurposed interior voyage to the bottom of the sea set. Yes, this time we're in the Seaview's missile room outside the impressive floodable airlock tube. Focused on warning lights flashing above the door-sized hatch, the camera pulls back as the chamber is opened from inside by a guard. The major domo emerges and circles around the perimeter of the airlock, followed closely by Will and the camera. As they round the back side of the tube, we get a better look at the massive open space of the missile room. But that's when Will is confronted by a most unsettling sight, which causes the boy to scream. Dad! 
And sure enough, at the far side of the room, we see Professor Robinson and Major West are both being held captive, chained at the wrists by futuristic wall shackles with flashing lights in what appears to be a high-tech dungeon. Racing over to the men's side, Will asks, Dad, what happened? But apparently John hasn't been read his rights or told anything else for that matter, responding to a question with a question of his own. Who are these people and how did they get you? Will starts to explain, but realizing how ridiculous it sounds, catches himself, stopping mid-sentence. Instead, he turns back to the major domo. Will shouts, you let my father go or I'll tell the princess. Unmoved by the boy's threat, the alien's face remains expressionless as he tells the young man, There's no need for excitement. Your father has not been hurt. With a wave of his black-gloved, ring-adored hand, the alien motions a guard over to the control pedestal positioned between the two prisoners, and with a push of a button, the shackles are opened, releasing the men from their bonds. You know, I wasn't expecting to see them in the dungeon. They somehow cut ahead of Will and the princess, even with Don's limp. But, you know, it was a welcome sight, although I'm feeling a bit cheated because I want to see the army. Where are they? Yeah, exactly. As the men rub their tender wrists, the majordomo speaks to them in a stern tone. He has been directed by the princess to show the boys some of their warriors. The word warriors causes John to shoot a concerned glance to Don but they say nothing. The alien commands the earthlings to come this way, but after taking a couple of steps, it's obvious that Don's bum foot still has him hobbling. That's when one of the guards gives Major West an unfriendly little shove from behind, causing him to stumble over. Incensed, Will yells at the guard to leave Don alone, but with a silent flick of his hand, the soldier sweeps the fuming boy aside. Well, that was too much for hothead John who rushes over and takes a swing at the soldier, delivering a killer right hook to the warrior's jaw, which sends him reeling across the floor. Before the soldier can retaliate, the major domo waves him off. Without a word, the alien waves two more guards over, who despite John's protest, haul the struggling major over to a table, connected to another bank of flashing electronic controls. Unsure of what the alien has in mind, Don asks what's happening as the two soldiers restrain him and a third warrior prevents the other two castaways from interfering. The grimacing Major Domo says nothing, but activates a control which emits a high-pitched tone, then renders Don unconscious. As the professor and Will look on helplessly, The alien adjusts Don's wounded right foot, then presses another control, which emits more strange tones. Finally, with a blast of flash powder between the Major's boots, the strange sounds subside, and the Major starts to regain his senses. Still wearing a pitiless expression, the alien commands the groggy Major to get on your feet. Don insists that he can't, but the alien harshly repeats, Get on your feet. Reluctantly, Don complies, but hesitates to put any weight on the bad foot, which causes the stone-faced alien to demand, Stand on both your feet. Slowly, the Major lowers his foot and discovers that it's healed. 
the castaways are astounded and tongue-tied. But the Majordomo breaks the silence, asserting that, Perhaps we are not quite as primitive as you thought at first, but there is more, much more. Then he motions for our space pioneers to follow him to see what he means. I love that scene, everything about it. Now, I still can't tell if Major Domo is a good guy or a bad guy at this point, but hero or villain, I like him. Mm. Well, originally, Major Domo was supposed to have used a wave of his hand to heal Don's foot, but CBS balked at that, saying it smacked too much of supernatural occult powers. So it was changed using the control panel. That was one of the few changes that Tony Wilson made. Oh, a good change. Although I'm sure Irwin didn't appreciate having to waste a perfectly good tablespoon of flash powder for the effect. (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking of fireworks and feet, let me share with you a story that Mark Goddard told Joel Eisner and Barry Megan in their book, Lost in Space Forever. It happened right after this episode aired. Mark said, I had kind of a weird letter once when we were in the first year of the series. We had one show where I hurt my foot, and I was in great pain. So I get this letter from this guy in Iowa. He tells me how great my acting was in that scene and how much he admired my feet. Mm. So he asked me to send him a plaster cast of my foot. Now, if that was too much trouble, he said, he asked me to send him a picture of my foot instead. So I brought this letter to June Lockhart. And she laughed, and she said, we are going to answer this letter. Mm. Then June wrote this letter that said, we are so glad that you admire all of Mark's feats, spelled F-E-A-T-S, on Lost in Space. (laughs) He's just footloose and fancy free. And this whole letter was about my feats and my feet. And June sent this letter to this guy who loved my feet. And we also included a picture of my foot. (laughs) Isn't that hysterical? I mean, (laughs) I had to tell that story as a heads up to any dealers in the audience. So if you're a dealer at a Lost in Space convention and some older man in an overcoat approaches clutching a large envelope with a weird story behind it, you might want to listen. I I think I have something you will find most interesting. A nude (laughs) photograph of Mark Goddard's beautiful 12-inch organ. Oh, I do hate to part with it. What do you think it's worth? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That's an amazing story. I'm glad you t- I'm glad you told that one. Well, I'm glad Mark told it. They must have a million of them, too, that never made print because they're even much more <laughs> yeah. red. What's interesting about it is it was June Lockhart that said, we're going to answer it. And Yes! I think she's got a lot more racy side to her than people give her credit. Oh, she is. They all talk about that. You know, she was playing the prim and prom mother on the show and in Lassie. And so she sort of had that image. But behind the scenes, they said she was a real cut up. So that just makes perfect sense. Uh-huh. A real blue streak. Exactly. Well, as this act nears a dramatic conclusion, we get another dissolved transition taking us back to the upper level of the alien headquarters, where the faithful robot is still waiting. One by one, our castaways climb up through the small manhole hatch into the command center. As the men take a look around at the endless banks of flashing controls, knobs, and switches, they're impressed and can only imagine what all this equipment is for. Professor Robinson even says he's never seen anything like it. Just stay tuned, Sunday night, 7 p.m. on ABC, John. You'll see all this equipment again. (laughs) We'll sure the robot knows, but all B9 can add is... It does not compute. Do not be surprised, my friends. There is nothing like it any place in the universe. 
The professor and Don exchange uneasy glances, but Will challenges the alien. You said there was an army. And there is. I haven't seen any army. I can show you all the warriors you would want to see. Part of the largest army that has ever existed anywhere. Would you mind telling us what this is all about? Narrowing his twitching eye, the alien agrees. Yes, I suppose it is time for you to know. Centuries ago, my people began the most daring, most magnificent plan ever conceived. No less than the conquest of the entire universe. You pitch yourself quite a job. Yes, it's an impossible job for any one race, no matter how advanced their technology. But time and planning solve all problems. And here in our underground world, we have been collecting what we have needed most. Manpower. We have stored more than a thousand generations of soldiers, waiting for the day when their vast numbers would be needed. And that day is... Now, long ago it was planned that the attack would begin when a traveler from some other planet had the courage and resourcefulness to reach our planet, find our underground world, and make his way to the side of the royal princess. Looking down at a gulping will, the alien finishes. Such a traveler has come. Okay, now I'm back on board on the Excitement Express. I love that speech. I love the plan. I like the delivery. But I'm a little confused about the courage and resourcefulness part. To do what? To find the underground lair and sexually assault the seven-year-old princess? I mean, that's Me Too movement speak for Kiss the Girl. But the point is, what courage? Courage to fall down a hole? And what resourcefulness? The only hard part was the bear trap. And Will was prepared to walk into that despite the robot's warnings. If this was to be a test, shouldn't that guard that was hiding in the brush have attacked them and put up some sort of fight? But, you know, right now I'm too jazzed to care about the details. It sounds like they might show us that army after all, and I'm ready for it. So hit me with your warrior shtick. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Mm. Well, you're going to get your wish because Major Domo turns to a nearby computer screen as everyone gathers closer to observe. Now our warriors will be activated. The alien switches on the monitor. The image on the screen is revealed. Somewhere in the bowels of that underground world, we see a chamber filled with endless rows of warriors standing frozen in countless suspended animation tubes. I think it's a nice composite special effects shot, but to our four protagonists, it's an incredibly alarming sight that leaves them dumbfounded and too shocked to offer a word of response. Well, may I offer a word of response? Because this is the moment I was waiting for, and Irwin delivered. He crossed the Rubicon, as promised. And to carry that Roman metaphor a bit further, I came when I saw how he conquered it. Because this was better than a composite effects shot. This was not a still shot at all. It was a live-action shot using a classic illusion. What you saw there were just two freeze tubes facing one another with a warrior inside each of them, then they were also facing each other. And behind them, on the far side from us, was a mirror. And in front of them, between us 
you know, the camera and the, the cast, was a clear sheet of glass. The lights in the studio were doused, but the lights in the thin strip between the, the freeze tubes where they're facing each other, that was brightly lit. That created a reflection on the inside of the clear glass facing the camera, making it, in effect, a one-way mirror. Oh. We... That's right. Exactly. So we and the camera, we could see through it, but the two guys on the inside, they could only see their own reflection on both sides. And that reflection is reflected in the rear mirror. It created an endless hallway of tubes as far as the eye could see. It was beautiful, majestic, and economical. Now, I haven't read this anywhere else, and I don't have the Blu-ray version to freeze frame it, so I shouldn't bet my life on it. But I would bet a delicious triple scoop of Gary's homemade ice cream on it based on two pieces of vital evidence. One, you can tell it's not a still shot because there are lights that are blinking in the tubes. And when they blink on one side of the tube, they blink all down that row simultaneously because it's an infinity reflection. And two, and this is the best one, it's an Irwin Allen production. And there's no way he's going to pay for a composite effect when he can get it cheaper by using a simple mirror and a large sheet of glass that the studio already has. So it's not only cheaper, it's more effective. And I loved it. I really, really did. That was the money shot, even though it didn't cost any money. Oh, that's really cool. I'm so happy. And it makes perfect sense the way you described it. That is so cool. I didn't know that trick. How did you figure that out, sir? <laughs> well, I, I happen to know that because I've studied spook shows and we use illusions like that in our haunted house. I do a commercial haunted attraction each year. So we use that illusion a lot. That's great. And it really jumped out at me. I, he did a beautiful job with it. There's no doubt. Well, there's no doubt you can see that effect yourself. If you've ever been like in a dressing room where they had a, a mirror on the door that you close and a mirror that you're looking at, you can see or that. the infin- barbershop. The infinity reflection. That is so cool. Great. Wonderful. But the part that is the genius part is making one of the mirrors transparent glass, but turning it into a one-way mirror. You know, you don't even have to pay for a one-way mirror. The light does it itself. Exactly. Nope. Nope. I never would have thought of that. That's beautiful. Before we break, for a word from our sponsor, the alien intensifies our fearless foursome's feelings of dread by lowering his eyes toward Will Robinson and brutally announcing, The first attack will of course be made against whatever planet was capable of producing such an ingenious and intrepid being. Therefore, the attack will be made against the planet Earth. Overwhelmed, Our castaways stare at each other in disbelief as the camera zooms in on a worried and confused Will Robinson, whose face is practically screaming, Now what? Now what indeed? Wow. I sure as heck didn't expect this invasion force to boomerang back towards Earth. Thank God Preplanus is 10,000 light years away. But that only leaves us, well, let's see, this is 2019 minus 1997. Just 9,978 years to get ready, so forget about the wall. We need to build up the Space Force, and quick! (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, unlike the original, being the Merciless, it doesn't sound like this alien plans on toying with our planet before he destroys it. So don't touch that dial, folks. Perhaps with a little luck, our space family will find a way out of this looming threat. Not just for themselves but for the entire Earth itself. Lost in Space has been brought to you by... Support for this non-profit podcast is made in part by... 
Monster Wax Trading Cards, limited edition producers of science fiction, horror, and monster trading cards since 1992. For more information, see the website at monsterwax.com. When we return from the break to start the final act, we're back where we left off in the Aliens Command Center. After digesting the terrifying threat they've just heard, Professor Robinson strikes an incredulous tone, scoffing, Do you mean this daring, resourceful, intrepid traveler you describe is my son Will? The alien is not amused and orders the guards to take the men back to their cells. Over their protests, John and Don are led away, but now Will's not amused and pleads with the Major Domo to release the men. see your father again unless you disobey disobey this is a great day for my people the ancient prophecy has been fulfilled and the warriors like their princess are returning to life there remains only one more thing to do that involves you me you will robinson before this day ends you will marry the princess me the young adventurer destined to awaken the princess is also destined to become her prince consort. Then this will begin the dynasty that will rule the universe. Me? Marry that girl? I can't do it. You will do it. I can't get married. I'm just a kid. You were old enough to fight your way to her side. I didn't fight anybody. I can't get married. I couldn't even support a wife. I haven't got a job. This matter was decided many centuries ago. There is nothing further for you to decide. Oh, yes, there is. This was a very funny and well-acted scene. Bill Mooney delivers the scene so convincingly, it was really amusing. You could just see the fear in his face and the tone of his voice at the thought of being married. He would rather be castrated, which ironically, you know, a lot of men are kind of that way after they get married. But it does make you wonder how radically different this series would have become if Will had become the de facto king of the galaxy and what role, if any, Dr. Smith would play, especially with Major Domo also on the scene. Hmm. Well, just then there's a brief cutaway to the princess standing in the throne room, who, unbeknownst to them, is listening to the conversation as Will angrily shouts back to the alien, that he won't get married. He won't say those words. I won't get married. I won't say those words. I don't want to be anybody's husband. I just want to be a kid, live with my parents, and have fun. Fun? What's that? When she said that, suddenly I realized, wait a tick. They never attempted to explain how these people speak English down here. This is the first episode in which that wasn't addressed. And now they're calling attention to that fact because she doesn't know the meaning of a very common word like fun. Now, granted, the reason is because she's never had fun, and that's rather poignant. But when you're encountering an alien race on another planet, you would expect them to speak an alien tongue. And if there were questions about the meaning of the word fun, I'd assume it was a translation problem rather than the lack of ever experiencing it. But the bottom line is this. If they hadn't have had this what-do-you-mean-by-fun line in the story, I doubt I would have even noticed that they never addressed this astronomically unlikely coincidence that everyone speaks the same language inside this planet. That's true. That is a good catch. I hadn't thought about that until you just mentioned it right now. Well, that interruption gets their attention, and they turn down the corridor in the royal girl's direction. 
The major domo bows and acknowledges her presence with a Your Highness. I want to speak to my consort alone. Leave us. Unhappily, her aide hears and obeys with a Yes, Your Highness. And another bow, then departs. Boy, say what you will about Major Domo, but he always is loyal and does exactly what he's told. He does. You may enter, my consort. The princess ascends to her throne and grants her consort permission to enter. Will approaches asking, You called me your consort. Now what's that? The husband of a princess, of course. Will you stop that? I'm not your husband and I don't want to be. Yes, I heard you say that. Now you can explain something to me, Will Robinson. What is fun? You mean you don't know about having fun? No. Boy, I wouldn't want to be you, not for anything in the world. But what is it? I don't know. It's just messing around. Doing things because you want to. Have you ever skipped stones? I don't think so. What is it? Well, you, you find some flat stones. And you go to a lake, and you throw them sort of underhand, like this. Why? To make them skip on the water. Once I got one to skip ten times, and that's not easy. No, I guess not. Is that how you have fun? That's just one of the ways. Well, there are millions more. But when you get married, you can't do things like that anymore. Why not? I don't know. You just can't, that's all. You have to worry about money and important junk and stuff like that. With a sinking voice, she softly says, I see. That's why I don't want to get married and miss all the fun. It's nothing against you, though. You're okay. The princess says that, I understand. Then climbs down from her royal perch, gallantly assisted by the hand of her confirmed bachelor boyfriend. No hard feelings? No, Will Robinson. No hard feelings. I kind of felt sorry for her there, but then again... I also think Bill Mummy may have missed a real opportunity here. Not only would marrying her make him co-commander of the galaxy, but she had an awfully nice disposition for a female. Most get madder than hell when you break up with them, at least the ones I knew. But, you know, we'll see how forgiving Major Domo is about all this. So Will may not be out of the marital minefield yet. No, I don't know if he's going to be able to slip out of it that easily. Will trails the princess down the hall back to the command center, where the robot is still quietly waiting. But as she passes out of the room down another corridor, Will is blocked from following by one of her guards. Flummoxed, the boy turns to the silent B-9 and complains, You made me kiss that girl. Boy, a fine mess you made out of everything. And all on account of that story. Whatever happened after he kissed her anyway? They were married and lived happily ever after. Shaking his head, Will repeats, Married and lived happily ever after? You are correct. It does not compute. (laughs) That was another funny but insightful exchange into the nature of romance. It does not compute. (laughs) So true. Back with the princess, she's made her way alone down to the high-tech dungeon where Professor Robinson and Major West have been shackled again. Rushing up to the captive castaways, she asks, which of them is the father of Will Robinson? Appearing to be exhausted, John answers, I am. I wondered why John seemed to be so weak, since not all that much time had elapsed since the men were taken away, but this time I noticed that the shackles 
were positioned far too low for a man of Guy Williams' stature, making it impossible for him to stand up flat against that wall. Instead, he had to bend his knees, which would have been tiring as he coped by arching his back away from the wall in a very uncomfortable posture. So maybe Guy's performance was based on standing in that awkward pose for who knows how long. On the other hand, the shackles were just right for Shorty Mark Goddard, even though he acted worn out as well. Ah, so Guy was the method actor between the two, huh? Whatever works. Hey, did you pick up on that comment? She says, oh, yes, I can see the resemblance. She said that to Guy when he he says he's the father. What resemblance was that? Was it his Italian red hair or his olive skin freckles? You know, it didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense at all. The girl tells Will's dad that she's come to set him free. Pressing a button on the control panel sounds an electronic beep that releases the professor's wrist from the bonds. John thanks the princess as he needs his sore wrists and then asks for Don to be released. But in a commanding tone, the girl refuses. No, only you and the boy. Now go. Ignoring your highness, the professor takes her place in front of the control panel and frantically presses several buttons. But there's no response. Major West urges John to get out of there while he still can. But again, John's not leaving without him. The girl begs, there's not much time, go. Don says she's right, get out of there or we'll all die. Glancing over her shoulder at the sentries, who strangely make no moves, she turns back to the earthlings pleading, that is true, go. Then she runs out of the dungeon, leaving the two men behind. In desperation, Professor Robinson struggles to free the Major by manhandling one of the cuffs around his wrists, but it's no use. Don repeats for him to go already. John finally relents to circumstances, telling the Major that he'll be back for him, then dashes out of the room before the bad guys arrive. You know, I'm kind of surprised you didn't brag about all those English labels you could read on the control board during the close-up with your Blu-ray version. (laughs) Now, on the conventional DVDs, the ones I watch, I couldn't quite make them all out, but I did see the buttons Set Reset, Single Instrument, Read Memory, and Item on Standby. Now, that sounds kind of like an editor or switcher bay to me, but (laughs) if you try to contrive a way in which it fits into a dungeon scene, it does sound rather ominous. Just imagine, if you will, this in the hands of a stern interrogator like Peter Cushing, you know. Princess Leah, this device is a single instrument torture that will read memory. Once begun, it will continuously set, reset. I'm placing the item on standby. You will tell us everything one way or the other. So I'll ask you one last time. Where is the rebel base? (laughs) Dantooine. They're on Dantooine. There you see, Lord Vader. She can be reasonable. You may continue with the operation if I were ready. Uh, All too easy. That's pretty cool. No, I did not notice what those little signs said. It's sort of like Batman where they have labels on everything. Yes. But one subtle thing I did like, I don't know if you saw this or not, but there was this cool shadow in the background that featured a moving silhouette of a caged man with his arms raised as if he was shackled. It wasn't that obvious, and I'm not sure I even caught it the first time, but I thought, wow, that that is creepy. And they spent a lot of effort on that little detail that I'm not sure many people even notice. What did you think about that? Did you notice the shadow? 
Oh, yeah, I saw that shadow and I thought it was neat, but it wasn't that obvious because the prisoner was also spread-eagled, just like Don was. And the shadow lined up in such a way that it almost looked like it belonged to Major West. Mm -hmm. It was only when I saw some different movement from that shadow that it was obvious to me that it was someone else. But I I did appreciate it and I thought it was cool because it was also superimposed over some bars you didn't see. So that was neat. I agree. I thought that was really cool, so... Back in the throne room, Major Domo is briefing the very glum-looking prince consort that the arrangements for the wedding ceremony are being made, and he has much to do. Just then, unnoticed by either of them, or the sentries for that matter, we can see John slipping into the area behind the oversized regal chair. As Major Domo drones on to the tight-lipped will, the camera shows a quick cut of B-9 standing across the way, with a perfect view of the professor's stealthy arrival. The robot reacts to John's presence by extending his arms, but before he can utter a single warning, the professor peers around the edge of the throne and gives him the universal sign for shh. The robot sees and obeys, retracting his arms with a snap and turns away in his best attempt at acting natural, which I thought that was funny. The alien orders Will to remain there until he's summoned, then departs with his sentries in tow. Downcast at his fate, the boy slumps down on the steps in front of the throne and lets out a pitiful, golly. With the alien out of the way, John slips out from behind the throne. Seeing him, Will springs up and excitedly gasps, Dad! Who shushes his son, then whispers, We're getting out. Making sure the coast is clear, Dad and son tiptoe back into the command center. When they reach the locked manhole hatch in the floor, they crouch down, and John attempts to open it by turning the spherical latch. He has trouble at first, but with a couple of extra turns, he finally manages to unlock it and raises open the heavy cover. Just at that moment, however, their escape is interrupted by an unwelcome tap on the shoulder by the tip of one of those alien lance weapons. The camera pulls back as our captured castaways are joined by the grimacing Major Domo and the rest of his security escort. The professor lets the hatch drop closed, and both Robinsons rise to face the music. The alien steps closer, lecturing the gentleman. He does not know how they managed to escape, but as they can see, it was a waste of time and effort. Defiant, John answers back with a heavy dose of reality. It's you who have wasted time and effort. Hundreds of years of it. I am not interested in your opinions. No, you people never are. You never listen, never learn. You're all the same, you would-be conquerors. Whether it's a continent, the world, or the universe. A few pages in history in exchange for millions of lives. Is it really that important to you? Before the alien can think of a snappy comeback, the robot who's been silently taking this all in warns, Danger! 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 You're a little late, aren't you? The camera cuts back to a close-up of Major Domo, who acidly orders his troops to kill him. No! Don't! As he turns his back and steps away, the alien soldiers, weapons pointed at John's heart, close in for the kill. I have to confess, when he said kill him, I almost cheered, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for all his degrees, the professor shows an amazing lack of common sense about when to shut the F up. 
what kind of reaction do you possibly expect to get by telling Major Domo he's crazy and he's a dictator doomed to fail? You know, I've never met Hitler or Stalin or Fidel Castro or even Kim Jong-un. But if I was a prisoner and getting tossed into one of their dungeons, the last thing in the world I would do to them is try reading in the riot act, you know. But then again, John's not the only one suffering from arrogant Americano syndrome. My own mom, remember her? Oh, yes. Bless her soul. <laughs> We're visiting Europe with dad for their honeymoon way back in 1938. This was just before the war broke out. And since my father was a concert violinist, they visited all the old opera and concert halls, including the ones in Nazi Germany, which, along with Austria, was the epicenter of classical music. So they're waiting in line to enter this grand old opera palace Mm. when suddenly the crowd parts and this big motorcade comes rolling in, Nazi flags flying from every vehicle, and General Hermann Goering and Deputy Reichsführer Rudolf Hess climb out and they head towards the entrance. And the crowd goes bananas and starts saluting, (laughs) Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. (laughs) What does my 17-year-old future mother, the visiting tourist, do? She starts giving the Nazi salute as well, only she starts hollering, Hail Roosevelt! Hail Roosevelt! Oh, no! Can you believe it? She's lucky they weren't both killed. So Professor Robinson isn't the only obnoxious American who can't keep his trap shut. You know, there's just something about America that just makes you smarter than everyone else in your own mind, I guess. We never listen and we never learn. Wow. Now, did your mother tell you that story? Did you hear that Yes, yeah, she hand? did. And I know it's true. I mean, I have the passports and I can see the, the, the Nazi stamps and everything. It's, it's amazing. Heil Roosevelt. That is hilarious. Gosh. And I was just thinking when I saw that scene that, well, John must have thought that he was going to get killed anyway, so he was making his last little speech. But you're right. It's probably just that American that can't keep his mouth shut, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe he did see it coming, because why else would you possibly, you know, that's just like saying, kill me, kill me, kill me, please. I know. Uh, I know. Well, it looks like it's curtains for the defenseless John Robinson, but before those guns can go off, a distant rumbling turns into an all-out seismic thundershock. Everyone is buffeted by violent tremors, which cause the warriors to hesitate long enough to even the odds for the professor. Even without his sword, Zorro swings into action, and with a series of quick punches and a little help from B-9 Bernardo, he manages to disarm and disable the alien soldiers, leaving them knocked out cold. Then despite the chaos being wrought by the severe planet quake, John turns his attention to the Major Domo, using both arms to wrench him away from activating a control panel on the other side of the room. With the entire command center falling apart around them, a violent struggle breaks out between the men. The sinister alien tries to choke the life out of the professor, but at the last second, John delivers a roundhouse haymaker to the alien's jaw that sends him reeling in pain and causes him to backpedal right into another bank of computers that spontaneously explode in a shower of electrical sparks. It's the last act for the Major Domo, who freezes for a moment in screaming agony, then slides lifelessly down to the floor. 
every character actor dreams of doing a death scene like that, Kurt. Oh, yeah. But I was kind of surprised that the robot didn't use his lightning bolts to lay some of those soldiers low. If it hadn't have been for that pre-planist quake, it looked like he was totally prepared to just stand by and watch John get executed. What's up with that? I don't know. You mentioned that before, and it did seem odd to me that uh, he never pulled out the old lightning bolts at all. Especially when they say, kill him, you know, and it's about to happen. But maybe they had exhausted their budget on sparklers and flash powder, so robot pyrotechs were offline in this episode. It just seemed bizarre, but you know, I liked it. I loved that scene. Yeah. It's surprising how much they can get away with things not having to be 100% logical. Because I could tell you the first time I watched this episode, none of this stuff even caught my attention. Sure. Sure, sure. Even though the aliens have been laid low, they're not out of danger yet because that quake hasn't let up. Dad tells Will, let's go. A moment later, they're both back down in the quaking dungeon to rescue Don. But John still doesn't know which button to push on that control panel. So he and Will each grab one of Don's arms and try to brute force his hands out of the shackles. Ouch. But it doesn't work any better this time. With no end in sight to this monster planet quake, they better think of something fast before the whole underground structure comes crashing down on their heads. From nowhere, the faithful robot who somehow managed to get down there without squeezing down that manhole, comes shuffling up and without a word, solves the dilemma by using his clawed arms to knock over and smash the wall jackal's control panel, which releases Major West in the nick of time. Yeah, but maybe the robot fell through a giant fissure from the quake. You know, that's the best excuse I can come up with. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. Did you notice our third prisoner, the Shadow? He's mysteriously missing. So either he died or he's taking a torture break. (laughs) (laughs) I did notice he wasn't there because I was looking for him that time, though. Good catch, yes. Let's go, shouts John over the den from the intensifying planet quake. As the fearless foursome escape from the dungeon, the shaking unleashes more destruction as a large, flaming urn is toppled over, releasing flames of destruction that engulf the room. Oh, it's better than that, Lane. Don't skip on the juicy details. The urn falls over atop of a bunch of mechanical gears, and they catch fire. So apparently, that hot poker tray is so hot, it sets metal ablaze. Not the metal the tray is actually in, but the metal gears next to it. So John and Don were really lucky to get out of there before the guards started playing hide the poker stick. (laughs) Uh, Well... As the heart-stopping action nears a climax, we dissolve back out into the swaying jungle. The Robinsons happen across the little princess, standing beside her royal daybed, with her scepter in hand. The group stops for a moment, and Professor Robinson tells her, Come on, princess, we'll take you with us. Without waiting for a response, the castaways keep moving. The princess, however, doesn't follow. Noticing, Will stops and backtracks. We're getting away! Come on! Sadly, she says, No, I can't go. But the quake will bring this whole place down on your head. John realizes that Will's not following and shouts for the boy, but he lingers another moment. The princess tells him to go while he still can. But what about her? She will go back into her sleep and wait for another day. With the world falling apart, John shouts again for Will to come on. He responds, Just like my boys, Right away, Dad. 
but doesn't move an inch. Instead, in a concerned tone, he asks the princess, Are you sure? I'm sure. Okay, so long, and thanks. With that, he finally rejoins the others in their daring escape before it's too late. Lingering on a close-up of the sweet little princess, she softly calls after her erstwhile consort. Goodbye, Will Robinson. Have fun. Then, as the camera slowly pulls back, the little girl climbs back on her bed, closes her eyes, and drifts back to sleep. Okay, I got a sound the creep-out alert here. I love downbeat endings, but this one was so downbeat, even I was a little creeped out by it. What's going to happen to this little girl? One of two things, and neither one is very promising. Either she's going to be crushed and buried beneath tons of falling rock, or, if she manages to somehow avoid that, she'll probably get molested by the next male, one much Mm. older than Will, who finds her asleep on that bed in the jungle. It'll probably be that voyeuristic Michael J. Pollard character from Magic Mirror. He's way into young girls too much for my taste, but... You know, they should have taken her with her, but, I mean, that would have created problems. What would they do with her? You know, maybe the soldiers would have come back to invade for her. So I understand why they did it, but it was still, it was a little awkward. It was. It was kind of like, really? (laughs) You're just Mm going to leave her there. Hmm. And, you know, Will seems to have more of a problem with it than the father does. Yeah, he has an attitude that's hard to explain about a lot of things. Okay, well, if you're all right with it, then that's fine. I'm leaving. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, even Will accepts it pretty easily. Sure. We don't get to see how our castaways managed to get out of that underground world before destruction rained down on them. Instead, we dissolve to another stock location shot of the chariot traversing the bone-dry surface of Preplanus. Cutting inside the chariot, Professor Robinson has his eyes focused on the road back to the Jupiter II, while Will and Don are looking back over their shoulders. The young Robinson boy announces gravely, The cave's sealed up. There's no sign of it anymore. That suits Don fine, but Will can't help thinking about the girl and what will happen to her. Dad supposes she'll sleep again until some other young man comes to wake her. But what about the invasion? For once, the professor admits to his son, he doesn't know. But, grimly speculating, he warns, if another young adventurer goes down there someday, he guesses... Their army will be turned loose on the universe. It's a possibility their world will have to live with. Ending on a hopeful note, he adds, I only hope it doesn't happen in our time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. There are so many things about John's statement that left me scratching my head. Will says that the cave is sealed up, but we're still left wondering, did the princess and her army survive? Well, by his remarks, John assumes that they did, but why? Also, the professor's Selavi attitude about the alien army conquering the universe was weird. I mean, he might as well have said like a lot of my fellow boomers do. Well, you know, it's true the country's going to hell, but what do I care? I'm already set. Besides, I'll probably be long dead before it really gets bad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my mouth about dropped open when John said that. It was like, what? You know, one moment you're lecturing a dictator about the evils of galactic conquest, and then the next it's like... I just hope they kill everyone after I'm dead. <laughs> and maybe you too, son. <laughs> you know, I was, I was like, just like, wow. You know, I will never confuse Zorro with Professor Robinson ever again. <laughs> that was just weird.
Well, next, we're back at the Robinson campsite. Penny is the first to hear the sound of the chariot approaching and alerts Mom and Judy, who race out of the Jupiter II. And as the boys pile out, they're greeted like conquering heroes. The Robinsons have a lot of catching up to do, and the gents quickly report on everything. From Will finding a sleeping beauty, to the underground civilization. Everything except fresh water, that is. <laughs> yeah, I could tell you the first thing my wife would have said, and that would have been, welcome back, now where's our water? <laughs> right. It did seem odd, though, that all the focus was on what the men did, and no one even mentioned, oh, and while you were gone, we were arrested by the intergalactic police force with two monsters, and Penny was turned into a platinum statue, and <laughs> Smith completely reformed himself for all of 60 seconds. You know, heck, yeah. I would have thought any of those headlines were rather newsworthy, you know, <laughs> after I got back, but no, well, whatever. Yeah, all you get is John says, is everything all right here? And Maureen says something like, well, it is now. <laughs> as good as gold. <laughs> <laughs> or platinum. Well, Judy asked Don how they found the underground world. He answers cryptically, air conditioning unit. That reminds the major. Smith pilfered the chariot's air conditioning. Where is the scoundrel? Cutting to another area on the edge of the Jupiter II settlement, we're treated to a shot of Dr. Zachary Smith, sporting dark shades, reclined on a cushioned lounge chair, and confirming Don's earlier quip, sleeping like a log. Furthermore, as the camera pulls back, we see that Sleeping Beauty Smith is staying cool as a cucumber in the midday sun by use of a handy, portable air conditioner. Smith's comfortable siesta is interrupted, not with a kiss, but by a forceful nudge on the arm by the robot's claw as he commands the dozing doctor to Wake up! Wake up! Upset from his state of blissful repose, Dr. Smith sits up, tears off his sunglasses, and reflexively shrieks, I'm innocent! I swear that I had nothing to do with it! <laughs> Coming to his senses, Smith sees his old punching bag B-9 is back and was the cause of his momentary state of panic. Reacting with a scowl, he greets his friend. You Neanderthal ninny, how dare you disturb my rest? I wanted to let you know that I've come back. Reclining back and turning his face from B9, the doctor mocks. Indeed. What possible difference could that make to anyone? Everyone has someone. I have only you. Dr. Smith waves the robot off. Have you indeed. Depart. That was pretty pathetic. I haven't felt so bad for the robot since Will mentioned to Domo in an offhand manner, oh, he doesn't have a name, he's just a robot. You know, ouch. Yeah. After a little delay, Smith turns his head back towards the still-present B-9 and scornfully asks, What are you staring at? For a moment you reminded me of someone. Really? Who? Sleeping Beauty. Insulted, Smith's face turns even more sour as he slowly uprights himself again and glares at the robot who's laughing at his own joke. <laughs> Stop that absurd laughter and leave at once, you monstrous metallurgic meddler. I'm in no mood for your heavy-handed levity. Maybe so, but just then it's Don's turn to dish out some abuse to his favorite punching bag, Dr. Smith. As B-9 says... Everybody has somebody. Mm. Steamed, Major West rushes up, snatches the chariot's pilfered part from that portable AC, and brandishes it in Smith's recoiling face. Do you realize what you nearly did to us with this? Really, Major? A man is surely entitled to some primitive comforts? Major West answers back in a deadly serious tone. Well, someday, 
Someday I hope you get what you really deserve. As Don storms off with a recovered part, the glaring doctor regains his composure, then announces indignantly, Insolent puppy, I certainly do not intend to bake. Turning his attention back to the silent robot, Smith snaps off a leafy twig from a nearby bush, ceremoniously hands it to B9, and high-handedly commands, I'm ready to forgive you. Ban me. (laughs) Slumping back down onto his outdoor recliner, Smith dons his shades, sighs with relief, as his old cybernetic sidekick dutifully fans our very satisfied, self-centered scoundrel. It's a genuinely funny resolution to an otherwise mostly serious episode that featured scores of deadly perils and thrilling adventures. Before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger, Kurt, give us your thoughts on The Lost Civilization. Well, I think, you know, if you watch it several times, you're going to find lots of little incongruities. You're going to find things that don't make a whole lot of sense from a writing standpoint. But from an entertainment viewpoint, I really enjoyed this episode. It was like a lost episode of Lost in Space. And there was so much different about it and so much new about it. And there was so much visual eye candy. I didn't care about the little things that were, you know, off. And, you know, realistically, there is no such thing as a perfect episode where everything lines up perfectly. It's just a matter when there's a tipping point where you start to notice these things building up, then you start noticing them a lot more. It's sort of like that point when your wife starts to get on your nerves. All the things that were always there start to be called to your attention. Whereas when you were in love, you didn't care before. And in this case, I was so much in love during this episode. The first time I watched it, I couldn't pay any attention to those little things. So I really, really liked it. And I actually enjoyed picking up on the little problems afterwards. It's almost like those little Easter eggs I talk about. It's sort of fun to spot them. So I gave this all thumbs up. No, it's not top 10. It's not top 20, but very entertaining. You don't want to miss it. It's not exactly a plot you're going to uh, recite over and over again, but you're going to enjoy this episode. It's got a lot of money shots in it, and it's just fun to watch. Wow, I agree with everything you just said. Case closed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding about that. Um, Actually, it's... (sighs) You did. I mean, you you had a legitimate concern about for all these things that impressed me did not impress you because you've been there so many times before you were, you were watching voice of the bottom of the sea over and over again. So this is almost old hat for you. I can understand that. But if you hadn't seen that, like two thirds of the nation hadn't, then this is all new and different. Yeah, I'll give you that. I will definitely give you that. I guess I got tripped up on some of the logic problems with Welch's script Maybe it's one of those cases when you find something wrong, you start looking for more things wrong. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I watched the episode the first time, and I really didn't like it at all. And I wanted to like it because I was excited because I, we were seeing something totally different from like the last three or four episodes that had been heavy on the Dr. Smith comedy and light on science fiction. I thought, okay, man, we're getting back into this is going to be like um, The Hungry Sea or um, The Derelict or something like that. And it had elements that I did like. And I, you know, I tried to be fair when we were talking about it and point some of those things out. It's nice seeing them in different locations. We're not in the sand 
the pits. We're not in the just rocks and everything. We're in a cave and then we have this whole underground world. All that I give it credit for. But I really kind of got hung up on some of the logic problems and some other things. It just seemed like, you know... Just keep in mind, uh, this episode put Irwin Allen back on schedule. So the way that they were, just from that standpoint alone... It was a pretty impressive way to come up for a solution to get us back on schedule. So that was really cool. And, and you know, if you if you had to create an entire episode that didn't occur on the same set, this was a pretty ingenious way of doing it. So I really appreciated that. And then also keep in mind that you probably were all excited about seeing the episode because nobody told you that it was a bad episode. Somebody told me this was a bad episode. And there's something about low expectations that always makes me really enjoy something that's not bad. So I worry about bragging about how great this episode is to people who haven't seen it. Now, they may go in there thinking it's going to be this wonderful, wonderful episode, and then they'll be disappointed. So keep that as, you know, just in the back of your your mind. That's just an opinion piece or whatever. But I had low expectations for this one, and I was totally blown away by it. I take all that to heart, what you're saying. And I, and as I said, I wanted it to be serious, but there were different parts where it made me think, okay, are we is this supposed to be serious or are we in a fantasy world? And I just felt like there were quite a few places where <laughs> I thought it was falling short, you know, but. Well, that's good. I, I, If nothing else, you downplaying it will help offset me, you know, boosting it up beyond where it deserves. And people will go in there with a neutral attitude when they see it and they'll probably walk away right. with their own impressions uh, instead of us polluting them. Exactly. I watched the episode, I think, three times preparing for the review. I did like it a little bit more like the third time that I'd watched it. But when I first watched the episode, my favorite scene was the end when Don and Dr. Smith and the robot are all together. For some reason, that was the scene that stood out at me. It's not that I hated the episode. I guess maybe it's like you said, it's a game of expectations. I was expecting it to be great, and I felt disappointed, whereas you thought it was going to be terrible, and you were delightfully impressed. So yeah, that is the expectations game you're talking about. And let's also remember, this is a very unusual episode in that it basically had no Dr. Smith in it until the epilogue, and yet I still thought it worked pretty good. But it does give you a hint of what this series would have been like on a week-to-week basis without Dr. Smith. Yeah, that would have gotten old after a while, I think. So Right. That's an interesting thing. Does the Dr. Smith humor and, and kind of silliness and stuff sort of distract you from pointing out all the logic flaws otherwise and taking Well, no. When I, I mean, my favorite Dr. Smith is, is the evil Dr. Smith, but he definitely mixes it up and he adds a lot more to it. But I, I could just see how uh, not having Dr. Smith as a heavy in, in the episode does constrain into what direction it can go. Because let's face it, Dr. Smith is a psychopath. You don't know if he's going to be evil good or bumbling bad, you Mm -hmm. know? And you just don't know what direction he's going to go. He's just total nitroglycerin at any given time. He may be stupid about being able to take a pistol and put it back together, or he may be clever and diabolical being able to take an AC unit out of a chariot. You know, he is so unpredictable that he's, I guess that's one of the reasons the writers love him so much, because they can go any direction. I think that's a beautiful way to end on a happy note of agreement. Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. The scene opens with a jittery and nearly out of breath, Dr. Smith being helped by Will down from some rocks onto an area of flat terrain. 
Turns out our pair of castaways have climbed up to the plateau to check out the source of a silvery gold light flashing in the distance that the boy had seen some time earlier. Smith's convinced that it will lead them to an outcropping of rare and precious metals. Will's dubious, but he's willing to play along. Searching the horizon with his electro-binoculars, our young space prospector suddenly spots the glinting light, shouting, Golly! Seizing the glasses from the boy, Smith glues the binoculars to his eyes, then marches forward for a better view. But Will warns him to be careful. There might be cosmic dust pits with no bottom on that plateau. Uh-oh. Unworried, Dr. Smith keeps on strutting, but just as he shouts, Aha! He was right! The distracted doctor falls head first with a scream of terror, disappearing into one of those familiar-looking cosmic dust pits. Oh, dear. Will shouts after Dr. Smith, but before we can see what happens next, the freeze frame slides in to remind us that this story is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Wow, all I can say, sir, is I'm getting a terrible sinking feeling about this one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks... That wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 28th episode of Lost in Space titled A Change of Space. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night, Ling. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.